Hey folks, Randy Newberg here with another episode of Leopold's Hunt Talk Radio. I am sitting in one of the coolest places in all of North America, a little place called Thorn Bay, Alaska, uh, right in the heart of Prince of Wales Island. Uh, my good buddy Jim Bachetel and his wonderful wife Karen have allowed us and our crew to come and impose on them for a week as we do another Sitka blacktail hunt. And... Uh, Man, once again, it was another remarkable experience. But before we get to the podcast, which is going to have, let me see, five of us. Yeah. Uh, I want to just talk about the great sponsors who make this possible. We call it Leopold's Hunt Talk Radio because of how great of a company they are to sponsor everything we do. Uh, We're out here in Alaska in the absolute terrible conditions testing Leupold products, using them, abusing them, and uh, so grateful for what they do and the support they provide for public lands, for hunters, for shooting, for conservation. Uh, I hope that you'll uh, consider Leupold products anytime you're buying optics. Uh, also, OrionCoolers.com. Uh, we flew up with a bunch of those filled with stuff because we hope to bring a bunch of meat back with us. Um, and they make really good, highly protective cargo containers when we do fly our camera gear. But anyhow, OrionCoolers.com is the place you want to go and use promo code Randy. And if you buy one of these really cool coolers, you'll kill your elk this year. Well, I can't make that promise, but if you do use promo code Randy, they're going to send you this really neat tumbler, and I can assure you, you can take it to the bank that the Orion Cooler is going to be the best cooler you will ever own. OrionCoolers.com. GoHunt.com right now has a 30-day free trial for all of our listeners. So you hear me talk about all this information that's in one spot. It's called the Insider. Go Hunt has this big platform called the Insider that has so much research information, data from all these state agencies, the best draw odds in the industry, unit by unit for all these states, uh, historical information as far as draw odds. It has public versus private land. It has harvest rates. It, I mean, you name it, it is there. And it's all in one spot. So if you want to use it for 30 days as a free trial, go to gohunt.com forward slash Randy. And when you do that, you're going to get the whole thing. You're going to get to use every part of it. This isn't like some little teaser thing. You get the entire insider system available to you for 30 days. Gohunt.com forward slash Randy. And on X. Onyx Maps is, well, I hope you've been watching the e-scouting series we've been doing with Onyx, but Onyx is such a huge supporter of us, of hunting. You look at all the conservation groups, Onyx is a big supporter of all of them, and its season is coming right up. And if you want to go and hunt the places maybe other people shy away from, you want the best, most powerful tool in your hand, in your smartphone as an app, go to onxmaps.com and buy the app. And when you do, use promo code Randy and save 20%. There you go. You've just saved enough to make it worth your time to listen to this podcast. Because if you ever have heard of Sitka Blacktail Deer, if you're even slightly intrigued by Sitka Blacktail Deer, 
I suspect by the time this podcast's over, you're going to be way more intrigued about Sitka black-tailed deer, their habitat, the hunting of them, the amazing food quality they represent. Because with us is Jim Bagetail. You've seen him on some of our content before when I've been up here blacktail hunting with him. Also, Dr. Sophie Gilbert, probably the person who's leading a lot of, I don't want to say the person, but of all the people I know who are researchers, she's the one who's focusing on Sitka blacktails. And then along with us, we have our two production guys, uh, Tyler Johnerson and Marcus Hockett. So I'm going to connect the switch here and you're going to hear all of us at the same time. Stay tuned. All right, folks. I told you we were in the most beautiful place that I've been to in a long time, but I don't travel a lot, so take that for what it's worth. We're sitting in Thorn Bay, Alaska, when I say we, there's five of us here. Oh, and before we get in, you want to have the mic right at the corner of your mouth. You, you want like a finger distance, right? Like if you can fit your finger in there, then you're good. What happens if you have fat fingers? Well, then you just got to talk a little louder. <laughs> so There we go. And when the Santa, you got a Santa Claus beard, you got to be careful because it's going to scruff and wrestle. But anyhow, the reason that we talk about the Santa Claus beard is because many of you who watch our Sitka blacktail hunting have seen, uh, I'm going to call him Jim Bagetail because I don't know all the nicknames, but the more I hang around Thorn Bay, <laughs> I have found out that Jim Bagetail, he has, he, he's like the character of Thorn Bay. So he's here with us. We're sitting in the wind, having just got in from a, do we call this a deer hunt? I guess so. We shot two deer, right? Shoot in. Yeah, it was a deer hunt. Are you guys getting a lot of wind whistling in your headphones? No. Nope. No? All right. Well, the editor will have to take care of that. Sorry, Joe. So anyhow, with us is Jim Bagetail, geologist, world-famous blacktail hunter, uh, who is always rocking a hawking. Isn't that what you guys said he was doing? Rocking a hawking. Rocking a hawking. If you go to, I think it's season four or season five of Fresh Tracks, you'll see two episodes we did up here with you. And then also with us is, we call her Sophie, but she is Dr. Sophie Gilbert. That That's that is, fancy. That is fancy. It's fancy, Randy. Hard-earned, though. Yeah. Yes. A lot of uh, years. Professor of Wildlife Biology at the University of Idaho in Moscow. For those of you who have not been to the Palouse country of northern Idaho, uh, it's a quaint, cool place. And New York Times just called it the Tuscany of North America. There really? you go. I know. Wow. Mm-hmm. And also home of the only Sitka blacktail researcher in the lower 48. Am I stepping too far? Yeah. We'll go with that. I think you can say that, actually. Yeah, on on my podcast, I can say anything else. And if somebody else is out there, they might surface. There we go. Self-identify, step forward. And then we also have Tyler Doc Johnerson with us. Uh, and I, he's now looking at me like, why are you calling me doctor? And he said, I asked everyone, how do you want to be introduced? And he said, I don't know, call me Dr. Johnerson. So we're just going to call him Doc. If you see Tyler anymore, no. call him Doc. Because he had to patch up Marcus when we, Marcus fell off a cliff or a rock shoot. What are those things? Geologic formations? Karst. Karst formations. Yeah, Dissolved but he sa- limestone. But he saved the camera. 
Skinned his face up. But Doc Johnerson went down the cliff and rescued him. Uh, it's like so, a pitfall in the jungle. That's what right. They are. That's what it was. Yeah. Okay. Except we're in the temperate rainforest of Alaska. All right. So with us is Marcus Hockett. Uh, he said he's a camera guy. He, I say he's the sound engineer, director of photography, and formerly the best drone pilot I knew. Oh. <laughs> formerly. So, <laughs> Only a moment of indiscretion. Yeah, one, yeah. In a hurry, he forgot to put the, what's the mechanism, Marcus, that like doesn't let it fly into yeah. objects? Obstacle avoidance sensors. There we go. Yeah. So the very first shot we were, the first clip we took of the entire hunt, Marcus had the drone out because obviously fish and game law, you can't use them for hunting. So this was what, July, this is the day before season open. Mm-hmm. And we're getting ready to make the hike to hell, or hike to heaven, whichever it turns out to be. From hell, yeah. There you hike go. From hell to heaven. And I am going to give probably a three thousand dollar reward to anyone who can return my drone to me, <laughs> so that I can pay the littering fine that Marcus is going to get. Yep. That is in violation of our film permit by leaving an electric object. Uh, a drone, a very nice drone. The, when we bought it last summer, he's like, boy, this is the nicest drone you can get. Uh, it's not very nice anymore now that we've recovered it or anything. So We don't know. I mean, it's still out there. It could be perfectly fine. But I did fly it into the side of a mountain. So Yeah, at Mach something. Yeah, full speed. It, was like, yeah. it actually told me on the controller that I was flying 38 miles an hour when it went out of. Really? Yeah, huh. not a signal. And we were partway up the mountain. <laughs> Anything <laughs> worth doing is worth doing well. That's, That's right. all yeah. I got to say. If you're going to crash him, by God, crash him. We don't him. care about the drone. We care about <laughs> the, the footage on the, the drone. The footage right. would have been very <laughs> nice to have. Yeah, so Tyler comes up the mountain just like we're like 200 yards into the hike. And it was a shot we'd planned. And Tyler comes up. Oh. Better come down. You got a problem. And Marcus is feeling bad that he ruined this drone that costs I don't know how much money. And Tyler's just concerned. Oh, man, we lost all that footage. Yeah. I, I, I mean, when it's the other Fair guy's enough. drone, why would you care about what it Fair costs, right? I'm just looking at the big picture here. You know, that's just a drone. That footage is, like, priceless. <laughs> yeah. uh, I think that drone, footage is ruined. $1,200. Marcus well, you is wouldn't let us go and try to priceless. retrieve, but <laughs> fair enough, it might have taken ropes and you know maybe some experts which yeah and we need it has a high angle rescue team that we could have called yeah, in it would have been the- very <laughs> expensive so the it was a it was a trade-off so we started off with such a great beautiful morning the unusually sunny morning we got packed because we got flown out to the beach and we stayed there the night before and we unloaded, had a great campfire, everything. And then we wake up and we are ready to go. And the very first thing, we crashed the drone. That you said one. we, but it, it was me. Okay. I, I, well, I crashed thanks, the Mark, drone. It's, it's <laughs> I don't not, think it was anyone else's fault. <clears throat> appreciate you stepping up there. Um, I was going to suffer in your <laughs> in your companionship but uh yeah marcus crashed the drone so what was going through my mind at that time as well at least we got the one bad event out of the way i mean if you if you're gonna have a bad event have it right away and uh so from there we spent the next what 
Six hours? Was it six hours again? Right at six hours, yeah. How much of it we got to 1,200 feet elevation? 1,400. 1,400? I think we had 1,400. And we went 1.1 miles in six hours. It's still mind-boggling to me that it actually takes that long. I mean, I just can't. Unless you do it, you just, you don't get it. It's hard to believe it even after doing it. Yeah, Yeah, Yeah. it is. It's weird. Yeah, I remember we were sitting at right here at Jim's the first time we did this three years ago. And when Jim told Tyler and I it was going to take six hours to gain whatever elevation, 12, 1400 feet and go a mile. After Jim, we were polite enough to let him leave the room before we started our belly laugh. But the joke was on us. <laughs> <laughs> True. It extracts so much from you. But you got to admit, we picked a better route this year, and we avoided a lot of the pitfalls yes. we hit the first year. Right? Yes. Yeah. We so. On our way out last time, we marked the trail. Well, and, if you can call it that. The, the, the route. The route. Yeah, there you go. Yeah. <laughs> the route. You and Jim keep reminding me, no, it's a route, not a trail. A trail means that it's manicured and you can actually navigate it. Not even manicured. A trail is something you can see. Yeah. You know, you can't see the trail. No, it's a route. (laughs) It's amazing that you're following in line. So us five, plus we had our packer, Nick. What's his last name? Schmuck? Yeah, Nick Schmuck. Man, I'm sorry, Nick, but I bet you got teased a lot as a kid with the last name Schmuck. That's not fair. That's not fair because he's a wonderful man. He is. Great guy. Working on his PhD in archaeology. Right. But how six of us could be single file going up that trail? And if you staggered more than two or three steps behind, you thought you were lost. You <laughs> thought you were all alone. Because the canopy just would swoop back in and you'd be staring face to face with devil's clubs and salmon berries. And I prefer the salmon berries personally. Yeah. That's, that's why I was kind of taken yeah. up the back. I, I was the guy in the back because all the berries that weren't getting picked. That's why you were back there, oh, man. man. I, like, oh, I, I volunteered to yeah. sweep up the rear. Oh, yeah. I'll just eat all these salmon berries you guys I ate more by. huckleberries and more salmon berries in the last week than I'll probably eat in the rest of my life. But that's all right. They were fine. Yeah. They were all right. But so, so the audience understands six hours. How many people hike in six hours just to get to their camp spot for a deer? Not many I people. <laughs> you got to remember, too, that there were multiple years before that I got turned back. I couldn't find a way up there. So right. that our our route and the stuff that we took was the result of, of uh, several years of being refused access to this place because I couldn't find a way up through the cliffs. Refused by the laws of physics. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> but not, not because Tongass National Forest said you can't go there. No, right? no. The laws of physics. Gravity. Just gravity yeah. gravity kind of stepped in and a lot of places yeah. there. But. Well, that sucks when that happens, but I, I was trying to explain it when you guys were interviewing me today of how when we left the beach, you feel like you're just stepping into this whole other world within about Three steps. Mm-hmm. Everything gets dark. The whole canopy is there. And it's the one time in my life where in such a short matter of time and distance, the world changes so rapidly. And the same when you come out the other end. Right. It's like, yeah. It's really, like, did I just step in a time machine and somebody took me for six hours and made me labor intensively? And then here I am. Uh, it's like unbelievable when you get there. 
Yeah, so that's a big, huge spruce and hemlock, uh, what we call a riparian forest. They're, they're gigantic trees, as we yeah. well know, because if one blows down and you have to navigate over, it's almost impossible to crawl over. Yeah. To me, it always feels a little primeval in those old oh, growth the forests. Lord of the Rings. Yeah. Yeah. You're like waiting for you know that velociraptor to like step up behind you. you know? <laughs> yeah. So <clears throat> we get there, and the whole idea of why we did this is when we hunted three years ago, it was me and Jim and Tyler, and the idea was that Tyler was going to get to shoot a deer. But I think, Jim, you called on the sat phone and the the transporter said, you better be to the beach tomorrow morning That's because right. we don't know when we'll be able to come get you if we don't get you tomorrow so morning. So we'd had, we'd planned a five-day deer hunt and it was already down to three because yeah, we, of the rain before right. and the rain was coming <laughs> right back. Yeah. So we had this window to run up, hunt, and get off. There's, yeah. there's a pattern here. That's why they call you doctor. Yeah. And so we decided, Tyler and I got to talking about this because we filmed a bunch more hunts that year when we got back. That was in 15. Mm. And we kept talking. I remember we were in New Mexico with Bruce Pettit from Leopold when we were really talking about this idea yeah. of a film called Reindeer about deer in the rain. And Bruce said, I've never seen you guys so excited about any place ever. You, why don't you guys go do this? And yeah. Tyler and I said, well, uh, That yeah. was the beginning. Yeah, that, yeah, that's where it started. And mm -hmm. so it took us three years. Uh, we were going to do it last year, but Jim's wonderful wife, Karen, who we've been imposing upon here, uh, had some serious health issues last year. And the last thing we we're going to do is impose upon your family at that time. And thankfully, she is her same wonderful, That's happy, right. joyful, pleasing. And you're making her happy because she gets to make dessert every night, which she doesn't I, do without I you. What? I'm about, <laughs> we just got done with dinner here, folks. If you can imagine a wood tick that's been on a black bear for about three months, that's how swelled up I am right now. <clears throat> I know. I need one of these tilty back chairs they got over here. Yeah, if I slept in that, I sat in that recliner thing Tyler's got, I'd be out. I'd be sleeping. But anyhow, that's what we're up here doing. We're doing a, a film and a whole bunch of other stuff for our Amazon channel, for YouTube, for everything, all of our platforms about Sitka Blacktails. And I guess we wanted to have the experts. And Jim and Sophie, you guys have known each other for what, 10 years? Just about. Getting Coming close. Yeah. Very close. And Sophie, you got your PhD at Alaska Fairbanks? That's right, University of Alaska Fairbanks. And most of your study was on these deer, right? The or, entirety of it. Yep. Oh, really? The whole thing? The whole here thing. On, here on, on Prince this of Wales. Island, yeah. Yep, on this island within 30 miles of where we're sitting right now. Some of them as close as five miles from where we are now, but kind of spread out across the central portion of this island. Huh. Mm -hmm. And I was focusing on females and fawns at lower elevations as opposed to those bucks in the alpine that we were seeing. Right. But down here every summer for about four months and then usually for two or three weeks in the winter. But then Jim really filling in the gaps for me when I wasn't here in the winter, he was doing my winter monitoring, which was just an incredible gift and really made that study possible. What, what was the winter monitoring that he is doing? Well, so the point of the study was to understand the relationship between these, the lower elevation resident non-migratory deer and their habitat and predators. 
And uh, to do that, we needed to mark individual deer. We did that with a GPS collar for the females and a radio collar for their fawns. And then kind of follow them through their life and see where they went. So we took a relocation every two hours with the satellite. Um, How many fawns they had, what their body condition was, nutritionally speaking. um, And then whether they lived or died. And if they died, what killed them? And so those kind of, those information, those data, as we nerds Mm -hmm. would call it, um, takes a lot of work to get. So the satellite data, once you have a collar on the animal, is pretty simple. But the mortality data, and especially what killed it, takes a lot of footwork. You have to receive the signal so when the animal doesn't move uh, for a set amount of time that you can determine as the researcher, uh, it will send you a signal a different radio frequency or rather uh, pulse speed on that signal. So when you listen to it, instead of hearing a steady, slow beep, for example, you start hearing a faster beep, bop, 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 instead of bop, bop. And when you hear that bop, 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 that faster tone, you know you better hustle out there and figure out what killed your animal. And Hmm. so I needed to be in school in the winter, right? In Fairbanks. And for anyone who's been to Alaska, you know, Fairbanks is a really long way from where we are right now. Yeah, southeast Alaska to Fairbanks is... (laughs) Seattle is closer, I'm sure. Yeah, way closer. My current home in Moscow, Idaho is closer. Really? Yeah. Wow. I can get here to this island faster door to door than I ever could from Fairbanks. Isn't that amazing? <laughs> That's how big the state of Alaska is. <laughs> it's amazing. So Ooh. I'd be up there and there's no way I'm going to be able to monitor those animals and much less get to the site in a reasonable amount of time because you want to get there fast so that, you know, the scavengers haven't moved in and disrupted the site. It's kind of like a it's kind of like a crime scene, like CSI or something. You want to be able to get in there and pick up all the clues you can before the waters get muddied by other animals showing up and accessing that carcass. So we needed boots on the ground, dedicated folks who know their biology and know wildlife sign who could get out there and investigate those kill sites and really help us get good information on what kills the deer. So that was Jim. So did you guys know each other before all that? I mean, did you know Sophie was coming down to do the deer study? Yeah, the, the, her, one of her advisors and mentors said that she was coming down. I think, we, did we meet you in 2009, just briefly? <clears throat> it wasn't till spring 2010 when I okay. came down to start catching deer. Yeah. And I said, there's, I was told, there's someone you should really meet. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, we've been having fun ever since. Yeah, we sure have. But uh, what I would do is I would drive the roads two or three times a week and monitor all of her animals. And so she had 20 does and 50 fawns. Okay. And then if one... Every went, year. Every year. Every For year. three yeah. years. And so what, Ooh, wow. when one of those would go on mortality, another man and I, Ray Slayton, we would try to get to that animal in a 24-hour period so it didn't get scavenged. Yeah. But, you know, like... Was it killed by wolves? Was it, was it, or, and, and so the one, the worst year was 2011, and almost every one of those died of malnutrition. The fawns and the, the does, or just? No, we only lost one, one doe. Mm-hmm. I remember she had that hair loss thing. The does are yeah. pretty robust because they spend all summer, um, well, they, they spend a lot of energy lactating, you know, producing yeah. milk for their fawns. That's a very energy intensive thing they're doing yeah. there. 
Um, it's almost as much energy as just being pregnant, like growing that fawn, just mm. nursing. So they do that, but you know, there's so much food in the summer that they also can forage and build up that thick layer of rump fat, that body fat. And that's their money in the bank. That's mm-hmm. their bank account. So all summer long, they're paying in and paying in, depositing money in the bank. And in the winter, they have a sweet bank account. And then they can run that down over the course of the winter and hopefully not get their balance to zero. Yeah. But if you're a fawn, you have basically almost no dollars in the bank. So you're just trying to get by and eat eat enough through the winter that you're on that knife edge the whole winter, just trying to eat and eat and eat. Slow starvation. So these these fawns, when they're nursing, they're not putting on fat. They're just growing. They're growth. It's all channeled to growth. So if you were to kill a fawn in September, don't do it. It's not legal. But yeah. let's say a fawn got roadkilled or something, you cut it open, you would not see that white fat layer on that fawn. Okay. The same way you do on an adult. They'd be a much leaner animal. So that winter, Jim, all but one fawn died. No. We had uh, three survive, I think, out of the... It was a a few more than that. So we had an 85% mortality rate for that year. One year. So 15% of the fawns that were born that spring made it to the next spring because of the bad snow. So that would have been six. We had six survive, I think is what it was, uh, out of the 50. Good year, you know, you have 55 to 60% of those fawns making it through. A full year. A full year. So you know where we drive and go to Craig? Yeah. uh, May 1st at that road intersection where that little coffee shop is, Mm -hmm. there was five feet of snow May 1st. Wow. Yeah. And so... That would, I mean, that made it really hard for these animals to get around. Mm. So you did this for three years in a row? Three years in a row. And then the next two years I spent working with that data, analyzing it statistically and writing up the results. Okay. And that's, that's what a PhD is. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Did you do any studies on bucks or anything? Not for that. No, this was focused on does and fawns and which is a little counterintuitive, I guess, right off the bat, especially coming from a hunting perspective. You know, most of us in hunting season want to know about bucks, but that's where bucks come from. So uh, in a lot of ungulates, you know, it's a mating system, as you all know, is, you know, one buck or one bull or whatever can take care of a lot of does, cows, cows, whatever. So um, we don't need quite as many bucks out there. So really understanding those, you know, female and fawn survival and reproductive rates, that's how you build a population model, right? Yeah. If you want to project forward how many deer there's going to be in the future, that kind of thing. Yeah. So that's why we did that. Can you make any qualitative analysis of habitat based on those mortalities? Or is it so weather dependent yeah. that you need multiple years of of data to... Yeah, so you you can, you absolutely can. Uh, You know, the weather interacts with the habitat quality to produce mortality. So if you have really high quality habitat and a terrible weather event, you're going to have a lot more animals make it through than if you have low quality habitat combined with a terrible weather event. Um, So we can analyze in a bad winter, are animals living in good habitat surviving at a higher rate than a bad habitat? Got it. Yeah. I can remember when, so I was also involved in an earlier study in the early 2000s that was done out here where we had 100 or 125 animals on radio collar, but they weren't GPS collars. But we had some up high and we got a super late March snow and it 
trapped those so they were in little teeny pockets of habitat up right where it breaks over out of the valleys and kind of the subalpine stuff and they virtually ate themselves they'd already diminished that habitat through the winter but then they ate what they had they died right in those little pockets mm -hmm. i think we had four of them do that up in those higher things where they just they got trapped and they they'd eaten everything and they just laid down and died i think we should give the listener like a kind of the inside look to this is a temperate rainforest so th how thick it is to go recover these collars and the research that these guys are doing i mean until you've really been here and like walked this landscape it's hard to even imagine the difficulties you know and like sophie's enlightened us here in the last few days of they're so misunderstood and so there's what'd you say there's like 20 papers written on them versus um what, 500 or so papers on mule deer, you know? And, At and, least, yeah. And um, I guess I want to make that point because I've hunted all animals for all over North America for years and years. And when you get here and you hear Jim say, it's going to take six hours to go a mile, and it's laughable until you do it. And so uh, the landscape itself is so unique, and then the deer that live in it, um, you know, I just kind of wanted to put that visual in people's minds because they can't see this right now. They're just listening. And True. so it just makes it a lot mm -hmm. more compelling. I've been there and done it a handful of times now throughout the shoots and the hunts. And, um, but it's cool. You know, you got ferns and giant old growth trees and moss and, you know, mm -hmm. your, your plants growing on yeah, top of other plants exactly. on top you of can't, other plants. You can't <laughs> see where your just feet are being awesome. placed. You're falling on your face. You're, mm -hmm. I mean, it is like, unlike any landscape you've ever really tried to. Put three feet of wet snow on it, tie on a pair of snowshoes and go through that well, brush. that's why you <laughs> do it. No. I go back home. I'm running lying about them. Yeah. <laughs> so in in the years that you didn't have huge winter mortality, what were, I mean, and people want a quick, if I was in your shoes, you'd, I'd say, Randy, I don't know if I want to answer it because people quickly grab to whatever they want to hear from right. your answers. But are there other things that came to you of, wow, this is a serious issue that these deer face based on the mortality that you discovered? Yeah, causes. so so was, we did our study kind of during an interesting time out here on the island. A couple of interesting things going on to just set some context for for what was happening. First of all, for anyone who's kind of followed the Alexander Archipelago wolf story, mm -hmm. um, you know the wolves on this island have been petitioned for listing under the Endangered Species Act twice now and denied twice. Mm -hmm. um, but that's in part uh, because of habitat changes out here and also in part because of some very heavy episodes of harvest. And they're an island population, so of course they're right. vulnerable to some things that a mainland population wouldn't be. So we conducted our study kind of coincidentally at a period of very low wolf numbers. Okay. The low, kind of the lowest ebb that's ever been recorded here. So mm. we had uh, only two juvenile deer in our study overwinter killed by wolves and none of our adult females got killed by wolves mm. right and part of that is we're studying wool uh, we're studying deer on the you know close to the road system right right so the you know who knows i can't speak to deer outside of our study area okay. just another fun science caution caveat but <laughs> um yeah so we didn't have a lot of wolf kill in our study but you know, across Southeast Alaska, wolves absolutely are a source of mortality for these deer. Yeah. You know, what we found in our study was actually a number of our does getting harvested during doe season. That was the number one cause of death for adult female deer here. 
was so there, dough there harvest. Was a, there was a dough. There's after a, yeah, after the fifteenth of October, uh, uh, rural residents can take one dough with oh, one of their okay. one of their five tags. Mm-hmm. Okay. But overall, uh, we had one adult female get killed by a black bear in her bed, which I had never really heard about before happening. Uh-huh. You know, I, we don't tend to think of black bears as predacious on adult deer too often, but we found we had one of those. Um, but overall, we had really high adult female survival rates, which is good for a robust deer population. Right. So above 90% annual survival. Oh, wow. Mm-hmm. So if you can get them there, right. they're going to... They're Normal. pretty bulletproof when they're in those middle years. Okay. Yeah, they can really make it through a lot. And that's the same for a lot of populations of, you know, like cow elk and that kind of thing too. Those prime age females are really prime age female moose. They're all very robust to the environment, to fluctuations in the environment. They're, that's kind of your best survival years. Okay. Hey, Sophie, touch on the, the black bear fawn issue. Right. So when we get to the babies, they are the opposite story. They are just... Tasty treats on four little legs. <laughs> they really are. Everything wants to eat fawns, you know. So we again, you know, it's it's the rainforest, but it's the temperate rainforest. So it's a pretty simple wildlife system. It's an island, so you don't have as many species as folks are used to. I think. Yeah. Like we don't have bobcats. We don't have foxes. Um, we don't have grizzly bears. We don't have coyotes, okay. right? So you got to cross all those off your list of potential mortality sources for fawns. What we do have is a large, robust, and apparently pretty hungry black bear population because they ate about 40% plus of our fawns and they would eat them over the course of the summer. Really? Yeah. So from birth till about August 1st was that 40% oh. cut off. Plus, you know, there's some variation in right. there, but... Um, we didn't have a summer where it went below 35%. So, wow. yeah, so they're definitely out there eating a lot of fawns. You know, one of the cool things is we were catching fawns at birth and, uh, we'd sometimes show up to a birth site and there wouldn't be any fawns. There'd be two little blood spots. And then they often, I don't know why, maybe it's the toughest part of the body, but they won't eat the little jawbone. They'll really? leave a jawbone. Yeah. So we'd see two little, two or three little jawbones. And uh, some little blood spots, kind of a distressed female wandering around. And then bears are great this way. They also always leave their calling card, just enormous piles of bear poop. Okay. So that's a pretty clear story of death at birth, basically. And we would never have known that if we hadn't gone to the birth site. Right. So is it normal that they have singles, twins, triplets? Uh, No triplets to my knowledge. Uh, and that includes, you know, some studies where they've done really intensive high nutrition feeding in captivity. Okay. Uh, but twins for a healthy prime age female is common. Um, a singleton, especially for a first time mom is also pretty common. Yeah. So just, just one. And the first study that I was involved in, we got the first family groups where we had the fawns and the adults all on radio collar. Yeah. And we learned that the doe, and you correct me, Sophie, if I'm wrong, but the doe will separate the fawns if they have twins mm-hmm. and keep them in different spots and she'll feed in between and go and nurse them. So if a bear attacks the fawns during that first two weeks, especially of their life, uh-huh. she loses one instead of losing both. Don't put your eggs in one basket. That's, That's right. Smart. And we didn't know they were doing that. Wow. 
<laughs> no, that's a with one, and so they would use like a forest service road, a ridge, a river, some kind of a physical barrier, and mm-hmm. keep the fawns separated. Mm-hmm. And for about two weeks, the first two weeks. You know, and they'll also just go to some pretty awesome lengths to just separate themselves, just to move themselves away from predators before giving birth. You know, really? So we accidentally collared a few females who turned out to be alpine migratory, and they would book it up to the alpine 24 hours before giving birth and drop their fawn up there. So making a move really late in pregnancy. And just imagine, yeah. you know, full term, heavy, trudging up through that crazy forest we were just talking wow. about to the alpine to we we think to avoid bear predation okay. uh, but we don't really know much about that alpine chunk of the population huh. um, but i also had females just jump from one muskeg complex you know eight or nine miles over to another muskeg complex it's not alpine and again is she trying to ditch a predator i don't know because we don't know what the predators are doing uh, but, you know, why make that big move? Yeah. Uh, we had one doe swim out into the middle of the Thorn River and give birth on an island. That was a fun one. Got to roll the canoe over there. <laughs> <laughs> huh. Yeah. And then I'd go watch her and she'd commute. She'd swim over there, nurse her fun, swim back to shore, do her thing, whoop, do, 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 back and forth. Wow. Yeah. That's a good mom. Yeah. Yeah. Holy smokes. Yeah. Well, having climbed up, to that alpine twice through that mess we go through. I've never, I don't know how it feels to be pregnant, but <laughs> I can't even well, imagine that. It's probably kind of like carrying yeah. a deer out in your pack. Probably. Yeah, there you go. Holy cow. That's unbelievable that they go through those lengths yeah. just to avoid predation. So when you say that, I, I was always of the impression that all Sitka black-tail deer went to the alpine at some time during the year because that's where the prime habitat was. And then they came low as the weather pushed them low. But you're saying there's the resident lowland, I'll call it that. You got a better term, I'm sure, population. But then there's the migratory population. Yeah. No, that- you know that resident and migratory, that's exactly what I would call them, Randy. Yeah. Hmm. And we don't know what proportions of the population pursue those two kind of life strategies. Um, Does that vary island to island? If so, why? Is it just how much alpine there is available or does it have to do with the predator composition or the quality of the alpine versus the lowland? We don't know any of that. Was it passed on from that's where the fawn was born? Is it a mother trait that that brings that on? That's what we think, but we don't know the answer to that. And, you know, migration in elk and mule deer, there's time pronghorn, right? There's tons of like pretty famous and very in-depth studies on this stuff. People can go look up if they're interested. The Wyoming mule deer uh, migration initiative is awesome. Cool web interaction. You can track the deer, watch them. They call it surfing, green wave surfing (laughs) because you know, that kind of greens up up the hill in a wave of greenness. And so they call it surfing when the deer are like out on the edge of that wave, like following peak greenness. Tons of cool studies done on migration in other ungulates in North America, but these are just totally mysterious. Is is there any population that's known to say, you know what, I'm smarter than the rest of you. I'm going to hang out up here in the Alpine and tough it out this winter. They don't migrate, but they're still Alpine deer. Well, would you want to be in that Alpine with three feet of snow? No, I wouldn't. That's (laughs) what I was wondering about that. But you know, we learned something this year. Yeah, when we were walking in. The rubs. So we had all those gigantic rubs. So those weren't get the velvet off rubs because we watched them get the velvet off on the brush. Those are the chasing fades rubs mm-hmm. at the end of October. 
And so at least at the end of October, they Mm -hmm. were still right at the edge of those alpine meadows. But that was awesome, thick old growth we were in. I mean, talk about, we were talking about that abrupt transition, right? You emerge from this primordial thick forest into this amazing alpine salad bowl. You know, so they're not in the salad bowl in the winter. They're back, back in that thick forest. They they could make a living or at least starve slowly enough (laughs) in that (laughs) thick forest to make it through the winter. We don't, we don't know. No one knows. Because we don't, we haven't spent, we haven't spent a winter out there because of the maritime influence out there. The winter might be less severe, yeah. okay. but we don't know. We don't know yeah. what those answers Sounds are. Like I will tell you, that's the, that's the first Tyler place. Tyler just wants to get back there. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that's a, one of the first places that that, out there. that that ball of moisture that comes across the Pacific intersects. And so I would estimate, I would bet you that there are places up there that get over 200 inches of rain a year. Mm. Wow. Precipitation. Unreal. I don't know what that and how much of that falls into, into snow. snow. Exactly. Yeah. That's yeah. the key. Because they're really good at just dealing with rain. But these are, you know, short-legged little forest deer. You know, it's not like a moose that can walk through five feet of snow. No big deal. Yeah, right? let these me things, tell you about it following their trails. Give yeah. me a break. I wish I was three feet tall. Yeah. <laughs> 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 uh, We'd have to cut you off at the waist to achieve that dream. Or, time. or you're just number four, five, or six in line. <laughs> you know, yeah, yeah. You, One you, or the other. You take my approach. Yeah. <clears throat> so there was a drawback to that, though, because we had totally destroyed any integrity of the soil in the trail by the time you came by. I know. On the way down after four days of Hurricane Katrina, <laughs> <laughs> we came down and the ground is so saturated. We didn't hardly leave a trace on the way up because it was so yeah. dry. You guys, you said, Jim, you've been in a drought or oh, yeah. a really dry cycle up here. A really dry cycle. Well, we we cured that for you. <laughs> yeah. And on the way down, I was the sixth guy in the meal train. And there was, it was just like skiing down grease, man. It was like, I'm just grabbing a hold of the blueberry bushes as I'm going past everybody with about an 80, 90 pound pack. Like, yeah, get out of the way. I don't know. I saw it grabbing a hold of blueberries and still sometimes stripping of some berries oh, as you me went too. by. I, I, I was, I was impressive. I, I was doing my best bear reenactment. <laughs> Again, though, <laughs> think, think of anywhere else that we have spent time in the mountains and it rained that much. And I mean, we're talking. You can't even imagine how much rain came down. And you know what? The ground just sucks it up. Mm -hmm. And if, you know, if we're down in Montana or, you know, in any of the mountain ranges, we've hunt deer and elk in and you wouldn't even be able to get out of the way of the the flash flooding. And I mean, it was crazy. And so it's just, once again, a testament to the landscape here and how different and unique it is. And I think that's one of the things that makes coming here and, and pursuing these deer so kind of intriguing and, and draws you back. And, you know, cause I keep saying it, it's like, I've gotten to hunt tons of sheep and mountain goats and really rugged mountain hunting. And, yeah. and, you know, it's, it's a blessing in that regard. But then you come and you hunt these little pygmy deer that just they're out of the radar. It's like, but they're like, they're, they're, a, they're an awesome critter living in a place that's just so unique and so yeah. cool. And, you know, I don't know how the ground can suck it up, but it did, you know, well, this so place? circling back to causes of fawn mortality, how many eagles have y'all seen since you got here? A lot. Like a lot of eagles. Yeah. So for, for folks who haven't been here, 
It's like the most eagles you've ever seen in your life, probably. Right. I mean, there was one flying by here just they're about just, hourly. They're just common, right? Mm-hmm. It's like crows or something yeah. some other place. So we actually had a couple of fawns get killed by bald eagles who are not supposed to be particularly predaceous animals, right? right. We More think of them fish and scavenging and whatever, that kind of thing. But we actually found fawns that had died. You'd come down and find a fawn uh, intact, dead. And so we would skin them out, skin them up and look at them and they would be dead of internal hemorrhaging, puncture wounds, those big talons. Wow. Just squeezed. You'd I've see got a, five. Uh, no. We skinned one and I've got it tanned downstairs as an educational thing and it has the talon marks on both sides. Holy smokes. Mm. Yeah. Yep. yeah, you'd see these just dagger Amazing they could get parallel. down through the canopy. It had to be in one of them, one of one of those old. It was things. always <laughs> along. We'd find them along roads and trails, roads uh, and trails, yeah. and the fawn would have kind of dragged itself into the grass and died. And and I actually looked up how much I was. I was so curious. You know, why are they not carrying these things away? Why would you come down and kill this thing if you can't eat it? You know, what is it? What's happening? And yeah. I looked up. There's actually a paper on this. How much? Uh, they've calculated how much can different eagle species lift. Really? Mm-hmm. Huh. Yep. And so these fawns at birth are just about maybe marginally liftable. Okay. So they weigh a little over five pounds at birth. Yeah. And that's just about the max lifting capacity for a bald eagle. But they grow fast, right? Mm-hmm. So at a week or two weeks, that's not something a bald eagle could carry anymore. Okay. So the eagle is, is striking them or gripping them and then it gets away and it runs off and the eagle dies. just kind of flies off, can't find it, it yeah. dies. That's or what it you're telling us. it grips them. It's on a road. They get scared off by a car. They're unable to fly away with their prey, Got right? It. They Got leave. It. Maybe they come back and try to find it later, maybe not, but the fawns kind of belly crawled into some grass and Mm. expired. And we're getting there within 24 hours, often within 12 hours during the summer. We were, I was listening to those fawns twice a day. Mm -hmm. Um, And so we were there really fast. Um, Anyway, it's only a couple fawns die like that, but it's just a weird, previously unseen thing that again, I think it's just, we have so many eagles. If you're a young eagle, you see this thing, it looks tasty. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Go try, right? Why not? Yeah. I had a friend that was down at uh, 12 Mile Cabin, 12 Mile Arm, and across the way they saw this eagle swimming in the water. It couldn't <laughs> fly. It had something in its talons, and it swam across 12 Mile Arm and walked, came out on the far side, and it had a fawn in its talons. No, it, you never it, told it, me that it story. Killed, it killed it on the far side and came all the way across 12 Mile Arm. Swam over this, with a fawn? Or to the side that they were on. Wow. wow. The hungry small. eagle. Yep. Yeah, no <laughs> kidding. So in doing all this research, Sophie, you must, there must be days where you say, man, this is a cruel world. <laughs> I mean, you must see some, and I don't yeah. mean this to be morbid, but I think we all, even those of us who haunt, are somewhat sanitized from what the life of these wild animals really is and how unforgiving, I mean, if we want to use a human context or a human term to it, it just, it's not a polite place. There's, there's, there's no not. manners, no please or thank you. It's just... Well, and I think it's interesting. I'm just thinking about this now when you bring it up, but hunting season is really animals at their prime for the year. That's peak physical condition for the year. They've had all summer and fall, because for a lot of animals, you know, summer and then early fall is peak 
feeding season, putting on that fat layer they need to get through. And so we're seeing them, we're pursuing them when they are as fat and glossy and healthy as they will ever be that year. Yeah. You know, and then after that, I mean, you all know after the rut, how run down a male deer elk can be, mm-hmm. you know, um, and then, you know, a female with a fawn, she's got to, you know, try to get herself through the winter. Maybe her fawn makes it, maybe it doesn't. Uh, there's a lot of nasty ways for deer and other animals to die. And by doing this kind of detailed work where you're going out and recording what they die of, you do see it all. You really do. Yeah. Um, from, from barren wolf kills to, but I find those even relatively mild compared to the malnutrition deaths. I think those are by far the kind of hardest to witness. Really? Because it's slow. <laughs> yeah, like slow like in a week, a month. Uh... I mean, the whole winter is a slow starvation, right? So yeah. the question is, do you die before winter's over? So... 2000, <laughs> 2006, we had uh, the year that Todd had all of his stuff yeah. out here. 2000, Todd Brinkman was also working on trying to figure out the population density, and we had a big winter, 2006, 2007. That spring, when we were working in the forest out here on timber sale layout and stuff, we would find animals still alive, laying there in the forest, just in the last few moments probably or, or, you know, hours of their life. but And they're surrounded by green. Spring had came, but they couldn't, ta- they couldn't get up to take care of it. They were yeah. so far down. Wow, they're that yeah. weak that yeah. even... You could walk right up to them. Yeah. And a really good, cool metric for people to think about is if you find a carcass in the woods and it still has some long bones intact, uh-huh. um, so the big, long limb bones, and you right. want to know... You know, where was it on the nutritional scale? You know, did it die of malnutrition? Break one of those long bones open and look inside and look at what the bone marrow looks like if there's still marrow left. Healthy marrow is white and waxy. You touch it, it feels fatty and tallowy. As they starve, as they work through their body stores, they first burn the subcutaneous fat, so that rump fat, that back fat. Then they go to the fat around the organs and the viscera. So... Um, kidney fat, that kind of thing, the fat that they store in, internally. Finally, when they are really getting there and they're they're getting close to starving, they start to burn their bone marrow fat, that white waxy stuff. And it's really hard for them to come back once they start doing that. Uh. And they'll burn through that fat to the point where all that's left uh, is the red jello. That's because we produce red blood cells in there, right? So yeah. you'll just be... Basically, you can pour the marrow out. It just looks like red jello. And so if you crack Ooh. open a, a marrow, you know, a bone that should have marrow in it, instead you get red jello out, you can be really sure that that animal died of malnutrition. Huh. So all of those funds that we would go track, that's what I would do is I'd mm-hmm. open up the back leg and every one of them had the red jello in mm-hmm. it. Huh. <laughs> so let's talk a little hunting here. All right, let's do it. Because... Jim, you've been a hunter since Napoleon was a cadet back at the academy. <laughs> Not quite that long, but getting close. close. And <laughs> Sophie told us while we were out hunting that she's relatively uh, new to crossing the Great Divide or whatever, yeah. the the small divide, you call it, the, the narrow divide between hunting and non-hunting. Mm-hmm. How many years? Five or six years or something like that? Is, G- is Jim... Six years. Okay. Six years. Six years, yep. Is, is Jim to be the, 
the person whose responsibility it is for bringing you to this point? Yeah, he reached a hand across that gap. You know, we've become good friends through working together on this deer project. Uh, And my deer project, like almost all of the big wildlife projects in the U.S., is funded by $100. Pittman-Robertson monies that come from, as you know so well, that tax that it gets paid by the manufacturer on ammunition, guns, bows and arrows for the bow hunters out there, all that stuff. There's an equivalent for fishing, Dingle Johnson, that funds a ton of awesome fisheries research in this country. Mm -hmm. And those monies, you know, that's what what grad projects are made of. That's what a lot of conservation and management-oriented wildlife projects are made out of. And so I knew that. And so I was already kind of intrigued by like, you know, who are these people supporting my work, basically? Hmm. Uh, <laughs> cool. Um, it makes I, me smile that yeah. somebody yeah. realized that and said, I, yeah. I want to learn more about this. I want in on that. Yeah. Well, I mean, my PhD work, just to be real about how much this stuff costs, my PhD work cost a half a million dollars. Wow. That's how much a project like that costs. You know, five-year project with 65 females, 155 fawns, that level of technology on these deer. Um, And our project was even cheaper than some because we didn't helicopter capture them. We ground darted them, catch and release hunting, basically. (laughs) (laughs) No wonder Jim was in. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. He's like, oh, I'll help you. Yeah, you bet. You betcha. So Jim was in like Flynn. Yeah. So so I I was intrigued by who are, you know, who are these hunters who are funding my work and work like that? And then I met Jim and I'll be honest, the first time I met Jim, you know, I walked into his house to have dinner with him and Karen, and this was before the heads had all been banished downstairs. Yeah. This was their old house. Okay. So his walls were just bristling with taxidermy. <laughs> bristling. <laughs> his, his house just looked like a like an inside-out pin cushion. It was just like horns everywhere. Like, heads don't hanging get too like close festoons the, of grapes. <laughs> don't get too close to the walls. You'll prick yourself. Like, it was dangerous in that house. It was a much smaller house, <laughs> Yeah. So I was just like, you know, oh my goodness, you know, this is, he's a hunter. I found a hunter. Uh, If I want to get to know one, here he is. Um, And then of course, you know, he's just been so welcoming. And and so what was it, Jim, 2012? 2012, we went on our first little walk. Yeah. Yeah. Which was me basically just being intrigued by the hunting process. So I still hadn't hunted anything, but I said, Jim, can I just, can I just come along? Uh, You know, can I just see what this is about, how this is done? You know, I'd been darting deer for three years, um, you know, so pulled the trigger on a bunch of deer, you know, putting a dart (laughs) in their butts, but um, hadn't killed or eaten anything and was intrigued. And so... Uh, Jim let me come along and it was one of the most exciting and frustrating walks of my life, uh, as Jim can tell you. I shot three bucks that morning. Yeah. Which, before the audience <laughs> gets called, <laughs> calls the tip hotline, Jim, as a resident of Alaska, how many deer are you allowed a year? Well, I'm allowed five deer. Okay. So, but all, I, but I also, under subsistence regulations, hunt for other people in the community. Who right. need it. Who right. need it. Yeah. Right. And so some of those deer went to some of those people as right. well. So all of you can 
put your phones down. <laughs> yeah. You don't need to say, hey, I, I've seen this big bearded guy on Randy's show. Someone needs to go check him out. Yeah. <laughs> so that morning, yeah. the sting is on. Yeah. You shoot <laughs> he blew three. through three of his like 25 tags uh, that morning. <laughs> and uh, I was just beside myself. Well, besides that, oh, really? we, probably, oh, yeah. we probably saw another 35 bucks or something. Yeah. It was a and crazy morning. I think the one where that really turned the corner for me where I was like, I am never doing this without a gun of my own again. Oh, really? Was <laughs> I was I was behind Jim, of course. And Jim, what? when he's in predator mode, he's just like eyes forward. <laughs> oh, yeah. Like glare, you know, just yeah. he's got the predator glare, you know, yeah. he just cannot be stopped. And he's not paying attention to me. Like he right. just better keep up. Right. So... And I look up and next to us is this really nice three point buck looking down from a bank and he's like 10 feet away from us. And Jim, you know, he's, he's just out of arm's reach and I don't have a gun. And this deer is just, oh, hello, are you my friend? You know, just, you know how these deer are, He's just looking, you know, not moving. And so I, I like lunge forward and grab Jim's coat and I turn back and I, 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 you can describe my face, but I was, I was like gesticulating like big, you know, big buck right Sophie's whispering, she's got her fingers forked out of the bottom yeah, of her head. Yeah. So we just, needed to film this I had part. just a crazed look on my face. The deer is mesmerized by the beard. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, lichen is one of their favorite foods <laughs> when it blows down out of the tree. So, Jim, you should use that as a decoy. You just what do you your... think I've been doing? All these years. <laughs> <laughs> oh, the secret comes out. <laughs> Dang. Now we know. Uh, so, so, that was so I vowed to myself, I'm going to learn what this is all about, and I'm never going on a deer walk with Jim without a firearm yeah. ever again. But I wow. learned she could pack because we both brought a deer and a half down we off did. that mountain that wow. day. We did. Yeah. But we weren't, we weren't camping, right? So we just, It was a day walk in. Yeah. yeah. Wow. So we did. We we got her a firearm, got her set up, and I had an extra little three oh eight, and that little three oh eight's become her. It's an tool. awesome gun. Yeah. yeah. But before we did that, she borrowed my dad's at six, and we went up to the Alpine in the middle of September. And uh, my first hunt, yeah. Got her, got her first deer, and then I shot two more. Isn't it funny how this story always goes? And then I shot two more. Yeah. Before we go any further, I would like Marcus and Tyler to interject because I, I am sure when Sophie said. You know how Jim is when he gets in predator mode? Because <laughs> these guys have had to follow oh, Jim God. with a camera. And oh, yeah. Jim oh, yeah. doesn't realize this, I'm sure. But he's giving you so many instructions. Stop, don't move. Stop, no, wait, wait, shut up. Wait. Look right there. He, where? There. Where, where's that? I mean, and the whole time, he's telling the camera guy, stay right here. Luckily, Tyler well, well, being the master rule breaker <laughs> yeah. myself, there was no way. I saw Jim. Look, it's happened more than once, but in the, the latest time, you know, Jim gets his tunnel vision going. Oh, yeah. It's like, we're making a freaking film here, and we got yeah. a lot riding on this, and here he goes. And he says, so, yeah. so uh, I don't care what Jim said, I'm going. So we went, and it, it worked out just fine, but you're darn right. It's like... Sorry. But that's all right. That's all right. There's nothing like a good, a good predator instinct. Yeah. Just imagine doing that 
three times in one day without Oof. having your own gun. Yeah, that's torture. <laughs> You'd be done. You're yeah. like, never uh, again, torturous. man. So yeah. it was very motivational, no. Jim. I'll say that. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure that was... But Marcus and I, you know, we... Being the professionals that we are, we, we pieced it together just nice. Sure it's going to be a beautiful thing. You know, yeah. we'll let Jim frolic around and do his thing. And, <laughs> you know, we got it all captured. It's, yeah. it's a great deal. Uh, so were, so do you imagine me frolicking uh, often? Or? Well, uh, you were trying to be light on your feet. Hey, sh- sh- he's looking at us. Sh- he's going downhill. He's like, <laughs> yeah. like, okay, okay, okay. So, so we're Tyler, gonna s- were you running to keep up with him then? No, I was frolicking too. (laughs) (laughs) We're going to skip ahead of Sophie shooting her deer here. Since we're on the topic. So Sophie shoots this deer in the same bed that Jim shot his buck three years ago. Literally within five feet. Our sample size of two says that if you shoot a deer from that bed, they land in the same bottom at the same rock. At both times. So Listen, far, it's well, just deer physics, uh, right? It is. Yeah. So I know we're only dealing with a sample size of two, but both deer shot out of that bed landed in the same exact mm-hmm. rock pile. Which is about 150-yard trajectory down the canyon. Yeah. 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 But while we were there, we as we're sneaking back, or not sneaking, but kind of working our way off this sheer face, just... Really, yeah, really wheels steep. were turning yeah. the entire time. All he's saying is, did you see that big three-point that bedded over the knoll? <laughs> <laughs> how, many, how many times did he say that on our way down there? And in my mind, I'm thinking, well, we got we to gotta yeah. capture Sophie's yes. excitement. We got to capture you guys yes. together talking about how, you know, the, you guys are such a great team together and da-da-da, and we got to take care of Sophie's deer and da-da-da. And... Jim didn't even get his knife out. I, I thought you know, he, usually you, I think you, the words were, "I'm going to go up around this corner and kind of keep tabs on this buck." Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's, yes. that's, that's what it was, Tyler. You're right. I'm going to keep an eye yeah, on you. Yeah. And I, I can sense this frustration that you read about. You know, I'm like, I'm like, well, Jim, like. You know, we're making a film here, and it's like, this isn't like we can do take one, take two, take... This is like a one and gun, you know, one time and done, then we have to move. And so I'm like, I'm feeling for Jim, because I'm a hunter at heart, too. So I'm like, I know what he's going through. But I'm, <laughs> but I'm trying to be like the filmmaker and be like, no, we got to film this. Like, we, uh, we need to... So it was a tough position, but you know what? You know, we... It worked uh, out. We, were, we yeah. made it work but out. The funny part was... Tyler and Marcus and Nick, all of us are there except you say, what did he say? I got to go keep an eye on it. I yeah. keep tabs and on this Tyler <laughs> sees you as quick as you go around the corner. He says, I think I better go with Jim. Yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> Tyler is gone. <laughs> Tyler comes running back and says, I think Jim's going to kill this buck. Marcus. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so now it's me and Sophie and Nick. Just and, butchering this deer. Yeah, yeah. butchering Sophie's deer. <laughs> And as Marcus is leaving, he hands Nick this camera. third or fourth camera we have. Like, hey, Nick, can you film some of this? And the crash course in filming. Yeah. <laughs> okay, in 60 seconds, you hit this button. I got it on yeah. auto. Don't face the sun. All right, we'll be back. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, and in my mind, I'm thinking, I know how this story ends. Yeah. <laughs> It uh, ends with a big boom. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, I wasn't even surprised when I heard the... No. Kaboom. 
boom. I'm like, well, now I go. Guess he kept an eye on it. We could barely slow you down long enough. We got maybe three pictures of you and Sophie together at her deer. But they, that. Were, but they were good pictures. Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> I don't, does you anybody were, know? You were very yeah, patient, there was some good ones. I was trying. Yeah. But no, that, that was I, I couldn't believe actually that that buck through all of our talking at the top, all of us coming down that canyon and all of that stuff, he stayed in that bed. I just, mm-hmm. I, when I crawled up there and I'd look back at him and I said, my God, he's still in that bed. Well, yeah. the deer fell in the bottom of a canyon. Right. You know, and well, it's I like know. we're in one side of the canyon. And the deer is bedded on the other side. I mean, right. he couldn't hear us. Yeah. But well, I, and, uh, go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say, and then we kind of had the same thing happen again, you know, but Tyler's a much more patient man than Jim. Stuck around for a long time before he picked up his bow and went up that hill. Yeah. I was very impressed no, 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 with no, no. that. Yeah. Fair enough, and thank you, but... I got a lot more riding on this than just going and letting an arrow fly out of my bow. I mean, I'm like <laughs> feeling the pressure, you know, like I want to make an excellent film and I want to tell the Sitka Blacktail story and you guys as characters and interaction. I mean, it's exciting from a filmmaking standpoint, but But was you're your right. inner predator just like pulling on his oh, leash Oh, my inner really predator hard? was trying to blow out of my skin. Yeah. But, <laughs> <laughs> you know, but, you know, it's, I don't know. I think everything worked out just the way it needed to. Well, yeah. And, Seeing you know, the footage, funny, but it's it worked out great. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. I, I I didn't get to see the chaos of Jim's deer shot, but I've seen both your camera angles, and I've been doing this for eleven. This is our eleventh season of doing it, and I know when it happens that way, and the angle is that wide, it was a cluster. It, it was <laughs> it was a rodeo or whatever term you want to put to it. Is that is it fair to at least say that? It's fair, and it's also I was kind of handcuffed in that I had a wide angle lens on fixed. Yeah, so oh, okay. yeah, it kind of that was just what it had to be. And Marcus, bless his heart. <laughs> He, he's just listening to Jim. Jim to try Jim to wait here. Don't move. And I, and I was like, okay, I'm not going to get anything. I'm the disobedient. And the disobedient black sheep child that I am, I just couldn't help myself yeah. and uh, went with him. But, but then I did end up running ahead and I, I and settled it, the camera yes. as the trigger yeah. was being pulled. I think it's a cool angle. It's a cool scene. You can scene. see. Like how tight Tyler is behind Jim, and just what goes into getting a shot like that. Like I had it all planned. This is all seeing the filmmaking. Yeah, this is planned. The pressure of every hunt is on these two guys. Tyler and Marcus have the hardest job of everything we do. There's no doubt because it's not like if Jim were to have shot that deer, where we can say, "Well, let's prop him up and take two. You know, oh, that didn't work. Take three. Oh, oh. pretty soon we're on take 20. The deer's bloated, and he, he now he's in the upright position because he's bloated so bad. Yeah. So, well, we did talk about it beforehand, you know, how we don't 
necessarily need to glorify the kill shot. Right. Like no. it's a very insignificant part of the overall scheme of the hunt, really and the is. adventure, and the story of the sick of black tail. I mean, the emotion's yeah. so, still there. Yeah. Um, the excite, you know, the excitement, the follow up. I mean, Jim turns to me. He's like, I don't know. I don't see him running. I go, Jim, you dusted him. And I'm like, <laughs> yeah. he's like, I don't know. I I don't. I'm like, trust I me. Smoke. I have yeah. filmed hundreds of animals taking lead. You dusted him. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. and it's funny because Jim's killed what two hundred and fifty of these deer. And, and I, f- oh my bad. Yeah, I know. No, but I love it that every time you're still excited and you've still got that little bit of anxiety that we all have. You know, like did it go down? Was it a clean mm-hmm. shot? Are we going to recover the animal? Like it just doesn't go away for you. It's just yeah. still there. I was shaking. Remember yeah, when I was reloading? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And I mean, this is a good point to make and on the broad stroke of the brush if you as a hunter make a statement like yeah i just don't get that excited anymore about quit hunting yeah, yeah. Fold you it know, up. hunting is, is about like being excited hunting is about shop. containing yourself hunting is about sharing the emotion hunting is about jumping out of your skin and and just you, you know can't contain yourself that's what that's what the the moment the, yeah. the moment of truth is all about you know and so for Mar- guys like Marcus and I who we capture hunting for a living. That's where our thrill really is for our job is to capture that in a way to, and convey that to an audience and let them like be in their shoes, you know? And like Marcus said, we don't have to glorify like the impact of the shots. Like if we can just get the scene and the setup and, and with Jim shooting a Hawken or a muzzleloader, for those of you that don't know what a Hawken is, yeah. um, just the big white gut. I mean, that's like the old west, you know? It's like, well, there's the speck of a deer. But I love that that slow-mo that you did a little later of him where you can see how that gun kicks. Just the the power being produced by that thing. Back to the artsy-fartsy part. Oh, it's very artsy. (laughs) (laughs) So we've we've jumped right into the middle of the hunt with talking about Jim's... uh, Natty Bumpo kind of <laughs> excitement level. Uh, but before we got there, we almost lost Marcus. So we, we get to camp. We set up. The weather is unbelievable the, the evening we get there. And we are doing a deer inventory. And I think we just quit counting. Uh, we did. Well, in the one basin on the way up, opening morning, there were 16, I counted, 16 bucks. And the vast majority of them were mature bucks i mean right. not normal right i mean not i don't normal. hunt sick of blacktail a lot but i can tell you looking at jim and his enthusiasm and sophie and her the look on her face and this is like it's crazy you know so i'm like yeah get ready to film crazy <laughs> <laughs> so is, is, was this had you been in that kind of habitat before, Sophie, where you've seen that density of mature animals? Uh, Absolutely not. Yeah. So I'd been in some pretty alpine spots. There's a lot of beautiful spots here in the alpine, but nothing approaching that quality. And, and also nothing, you know, it's, it's a incredible patch of habitat, both the alpine and the next door timber for the winter. Yeah. But then they're also just hard to access. Yeah. You know, <laughs> they're not receiving a lot of pressure, right. you know, so the age class has a chance to develop. So okay. those two things in combination are what produces 16 bucks lined up in a basin like we saw. 
And I don't even know how many tens of bucks across that face yeah, it was that a we were looking at. Yeah, was a portion of the basin. Yeah, there was that 16. one little face, one, right? Yeah, uh, Carnage Canyon yeah. we were calling it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, yeah. So when we got there, Speaking of that. Af- after getting to camp, I, uh, I was worried. I'm like, what if last time was just this anomaly? What if we get there, we labor, struggle, exert ourselves, tear clothes apart and ruin equipment, and we get there and they're not there? I was really concerned because of the previous weeks of sunshine. Yeah, the heat. Because you can burn that forage in those alpine settings, and when it's too hot, they need to move into the shade to regulate their body temperature. Okay. So I was really concerned. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I didn't say that I was concerned. <laughs> no, I, I'm glad you didn't because it would have confirmed my worries. But we have a lens called the bazooka lens. What is it, Marcus? It's a Sigma 600 millimeter lens. Yeah, yeah. that weighs like, uh, I it's don't know. It's enormous. Yeah. But Marcus was sitting there with the bazooka all evening <laughs> to the wee hours. <laughs> Photograph, not photographing, videoing and a a crazy number of deer and they their orangish red yep. bodies stand out it, it, it's I just wish, beautiful I wish video could do it justice you yeah. you, you have to go there and see it it's to, the brightest imagine the brightest green you can imagine the most like vivid high yeah. saturation green yeah and then double it that's how green it is there yeah and you've got these gorgeous chestnut colored deer Big white throat patches, double throat patches, gorgeous tight basket antlers, and they just look awesome. With big butts. Remember, we decided they all had <laughs> And they're just out there just feeding their heads off. It's so lush. They're up to their knees in food. It's just gorgeous. Yeah. And that was that first night we saw the big 4x4, four four, right? That's right. Way in the back corner night? there. Yeah. 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 And yeah. so the next Candidate. morning... The w- one who... Yeah, we we decide we're going to go and kill that big 4 by 4 somebody is, and we start m- marching up. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Right. As long happen. as she shot before you did. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, we're, <laughs> we're marching up that, and it's, it's so deceiving because all that karst is covered with vegetation. Let Jim explain, yeah. not to yeah, what, what cut you off, ex- but explain the cutoff between this karst limestone and Jim. then the other side and just the pitfalls yeah. and whatnot. Like oh, you're yeah. the geologist. Jim's a geologist, so he can explain what this landscape is. So it's, it's is. a marble and the, with the great rainfall is dissolved into this landscape and it dissolves back to these razor sharp pinnacles. Like big, like a, a stagosaurus spine. That's exactly right. And so, but mixed in amongst that is vertical pits and shafts and sinkholes. Covered with foliage and you can't <laughs> see the holes. Like right. it's... Gnarly. That's right. And so, and and you're trying to traverse this solution-modified landscape with all this vegetation on it. And when you're climbing up it, what you don't know is on the backside of that knob is another series of pits and shafts and stuff. Right. And so then you have to try to relocate. And we were trying to stay out of the vision of those 16 bucks in that basin, right. which it, it, pushed us over into the gnarly karst instead of going up the not-so-gnarly karst. Right. Until mm-hmm. we got up to the non-limestone ge- or marble geology that was up above where it was kind of just a shallow or very tight tundra vegetation and so for most just for the the listener to get a visual 
I'm I'm like I got all four hubs locked in. Oh I, yeah. I I'm like holding with my hands, grabbing grass and brush and limbs, and Marcus is carrying a camera. And it's got his monitor on it. Yeah. Another big gaudy thing that I would not want to be. How much does that thing weigh, Marcus? That whole rig that you're carrying. And then you've got a trekking pole in the other hand. That's less than that. Okay. Yeah, the trekking pole was a mistake. Yeah. (laughs) At that point. It's nice sometimes, but that was not the time to have a trekking pole. I was using absolutely both hands in there. Yeah. Yeah. And so. He wished he was. (laughs) Yeah. Also, he was not second or third in line and so he was fifth in line right and so the things that have already been disturbed and once you go through that thing that your neck the neck the second person doesn't have the the footing of the first person yeah Yeah. so you care to explain (laughs) to the audience marcus what it's like to slide down into a hole that you don't know if you're going to come to an end phase two of me trying to ruin the production yeah yeah. Crashing the drone and then just like falling into a pit. With a $6,000 camera and he used his face to protect the camera. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I yeah. did not let go of the camera. Right. Yeah. Well, the, the one thing that was going there. through my mind once I started sliding was like, Jim's like, Jim told us that some of these go down like hundreds of feet. They yeah. do. And I'm like, <laughs> that was going through my mind. And I'm like, did you held remember? the camera straight up in the air and then took some rock to the face. But we, I stopped, like, not that far down. It was not not too far. What, 10, 15 yeah. feet? But still feet. couldn't see you. No, we couldn't see you. <laughs> Disappeared. Uh, yeah. Uh, Nick was but behind I was actually... you. I turned around when I heard, whoa, and Nick is reaching to grab you, and he missed you by, like, the slimmest uh, of reach. Yeah. I was actually really excited to hear Marcus swearing at Me the bottom. Too. Yeah, <laughs> because I, I figured if he'd broken a femur or something, he'd be screaming. Yeah. So I was like, "Yes, I'm cursing. He's yeah. gonna be okay." <laughs> yeah. That I, was a scary moment, though. I peeked down into the chute and I could see his head. I'm yeah. like, "Don't move. Yeah. Don't move. Where are you doing? <laughs> Don't move because yeah. you're stuck, and we'll find a way to get you before you fall another hundred feet." No, but, I real. I mean, it was it was definitely a dead end to yeah. the pit where I was at, but. Lucky. We Just walked by to later. Ruin we the, ruined the hunt again. We walked by <laughs> some pits later that it would have been a lot worse. Yep, that's for sure. Yeah. Especially yeah. The that next that day. one <laughs> the next day. That's um, why I was up above. It, it allowed, well, it allowed me an extra level of protection, and also it was prime. Well, uh, let's not forget photography. For, you know, getting the shot of Tyler walking pit. above that pit was. Uh, let's not forget that kind of poor incredible. beaver, right? So we went oh, to yeah. a cave a couple of days later after on a rainy day to explore a cave, and at the bottom of a pit there was a dead beaver. I it could have been I, you, Marcus. <laughs> yeah. I still don't think it's a beaver. That thing's got a head on it. Like, <laughs> <laughs> I think it's a buck tooth sasquatch. <laughs> I've, I've trapped. It's a juvie. I, I, yeah. <laughs> I bet you in my life I've trapped almost a thousand beaver, and I've skinned just about every one of them. I've never seen a beaver with a head anywhere near the size of that. Alaskan thing. beavers are bigger. Everything's uh, bigger in everything's Alaska. Bigger. I, I, I'm calling BS on that. I think we've got like some some throwback to uh, it. Could be. Bigfoot. Jim, what's the heaviest beaver you ever heard of in Alaska? I'm, I don't know. I mean, I've caught a couple in the 70 and 80 pound 
brain. Yeah, and that's a monster, an 80-pound yeah. beaver. And they have a head on them about that wide. Oh, no. No, no. ours are much larger than that. Yeah. Okay. It's right, a They really are. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I'll be interested when you get that thing carbon dated. Yeah. Right. It, well, I mean... We talked about this. What's the probability of a beaver first being in that alpine, second finding that cave, and third being unlucky enough to find the way to the bottom of the pit where he can't get out of it? Yeah. Uh, you know, and then us, they actually, and then his bones, of course, the cave environment keeps them from, they're not fossilized, they're just preserved, but still the probability of preservation is slim to none. Yeah. Anyhow. It'll well, be interesting to see. So there we are. We've per- pulled Marcus out of the pit. Yeah. And he's okay. You, you should see the look on Jim's face at this time because he's a caring guy. But he knows now we have no choice but to go around the face and expose this train of six people to this group of 16 bucks in the basin that we contains no that large four by four. Yeah. Continuing to ruin the hunt. Yeah. Just but he, in a... In a <laughs> Moment of, of humanity that is always expected of Jim. He does the right thing and leads us out into the brightness and the deer kind of well, disperse over the Also, rift. though, I've run for 30 years up here, run expeditions mapping this caves and car stuff, and we've had people get seriously hurt in the Alpine, and I was... I was terrified when he went down Yeah, because yeah. I know what... And I've cut myself on those fins numerous times and had... Had to be put back together, and it's it can is not a they good thing. They were razor sharp, yeah. Yeah. razor sharp. Yeah, I think all of our pants took a real beating from that oh, yeah. in the course of that. Yeah, time. we need to talk to Sitka Gear about putting a Kevlar butt on those. <laughs> yeah. I think so. Well, part of the problem is it's so steep. Some places you're scooting down on your right. butt across yeah. razor sharp rocks, and that's not conducive to <laughs> great longevity of anything. No, but so we continue on our way up there. And I'm going to let someone else take over the story from here because I'm in the shade taking a nap (laughs) and I hear the passing of Tyler. I can tell it's Tyler because he's got a a wheelbase about 12 feet long. He puts one foot down about every second and then it's the drop of the next foot because he's got such long strides. Because he was in predator mode. Right. He was. (laughs) And I I wake up as he's running by. I'm like, what's going on? He's like, Sophie's killing a buck. And boom. He's gone. And then my short little legs, trying to keep up with him. And then Marcus has a bum foot. And I hear Marcus coming on, and it's like step and a half, like boom, 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 No. Marcus is fast. He's right there. Right. No, I mean, he's like right behind you. He's adapted. Yeah. And so I'm like, oh, I'm tired. I'm going back to sleep. So you guys took off. I don't know what happened. Yeah. Other Nick and I. That was a quick move. For it was sure. a joint venture. No, it was. We got above the 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 canyon with the 16 bucks, and I wouldn't say there's 16 left because they certainly had got there stirred was up a little bit. Five in there but, or something like yeah, that. Yeah, and there was some quality deer, mm-hmm. and basically we were we were on an approach for a different really nice buck that was bedded and I mean just to lay it out it's like which one do you want Sophie I mean over here over here over here you know and it's it's kind of a nerve-wracking deal you know she's got two cameras in her face you know she's got Jim enough said (laughs) 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 she's got choices yeah and uh you know we're we're not trying to tell her to do anything but it's like 
Burden yeah. hand. We got it was one a really right here. interesting moment. I'll be honest. It's like you know, I, I'm, I was really excited to harvest a deer. Of course, I always am. But I also really, I really wanted this to be a great film. You know, that was a really, that was for me the number one thing we are there to do because I really want people to know about these deer. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I, that is what I was doing there. And of course, it's a wonderful personal experience and opportunity, mm-hmm. 100%. But I, I wanted to have you guys get what you needed sure. to make this beautiful and effective and reach a whole bunch of folks. Um, and I think we got really lucky. That was an awesome opportunity. Well, the, the hunters out there, you know, even non-hunters can put themselves in our shoes. But when you've done something before... There is no like lapse in time. And we had been there before. As a matter of fact, Randy had filmed from this lookout that we were headed to when Jim and I three years earlier had snuck in and shot his buck in this same spot. So we knew where we were going to go. We had the deer below us. Sophie had pulled, you know, she had made the choice. I'm going to take that buck. And we get down in there and we're getting her set up and everything ready. And Marcus is there with the one camera. I've got the 600 on another tripod, the big lens. I have a third camera there for like a tight lens. So we're really trying to like maximize the moment here, you know, and we're letting things develop. And I can't really quite see the buck that we had first seen. It had kind of gone into a really nice three point right below us. There's these gullies coming down, and And it it is straight. Down. Yeah. We are yeah. straight down. We are and these rocky gullies them. with beautiful green meadows in between them. Mm-hmm. And it had rolled over one of those green meadows into a gully. And so we were just waiting. Yep. And everyone's looking down. And so I'm I'm like on the, <laughs> I guess, uphill side of everyone who's very focused. Very focused. And I'm kind of tra- between running two cameras and having a long lens and chit-chatting, talking and overseeing. And, you know, there's a lot going on, but we're in control. And next thing you know, I look over to my left and I'm not, I'm talking 35 yards away is a really nice buck. Yeah. And I'm like, guys, don't guys. move right now. <laughs> There's a really nice buck like right here. And they're all looking around like, like, where? where? I don't where? see. And I go, nine o'clock. Like and right all of us there. were like drawing a clock in our head and we're like, nine o'clock, we. And we all swing our heads over and like, there he is, just looking at us. Yeah. Wow. And then carries on. So I, I'm like, Sophie, what do you think? She goes, oh, I'm shooting. Yeah. So, <laughs> so uh, you know, we, you know, recalculated, recalibrated, whatever the word might yeah. be. And the deer just moved and moved and kept walking and kept walking. And, you know, as it was, the deer walked right down, yeah. right above where a Jim had taken his buck three years earlier. And I'm talking Five within feet. like feet, yeah. yeah. You know, and just the irony and just, I'm like, oh, this is meant to be. Like, this is just crazy. <laughs> and, uh, there, you know, I'll, I'll let you guys take it from there. But we got it all on film and Sophie made a great yeah. shot. And, yeah. it, you know, I had three cameras going and. Uh, Randy was napping and <laughs> <laughs> Randy yeah. was observing by then. We, we were had the alarm we clock. Woke him up from oh yeah, nap. you were. I, by by then. then I was over just That's around right. the point from you glassing these other deer, yeah. and Got I saw it. Nick above me looking at the same one. And there's one of them over there, like a lab that's laying in front of a fireplace yeah. trying to to warm up. This thing is splayed out 
with his front legs way out under <laughs> doing the starfish. Yeah, what they almost look dead in that pose, yeah. right? And yeah, they're so he, comfortable. He wasn't that big, but and then I heard the shot. But from just over that little knob I was at, it sounded like a muzzle loader, not a seven MMOA. <laughs> and uh, but I came over and it was all smiles over by you guys. I'm like, well, dang, I got to go down there and get the story here. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. sorry, I'm. I don't know why I was even on a, along on this trip. Mm-hmm. It's like worthless. But <laughs> so well. It was great to go down there and see your buck. That was a very exciting moment. Absolutely. Yeah. It's crazy that we traveled that far. Yeah. Three years later, all the time, all to the thought, the exact all the effort, same. and the deer dies in the exact spot well, that Jim's buck died. And you guys from. knew what to expect, but I was just like, dang, that thing is falling a long <laughs> way <laughs> down. down. And just like cap dropping, you know. For you sheep hunters stop? out there, and I've hunted a lot of sheep, this is sheep country. That these deer are in, <laughs> like as steep as it gets. Yeah. It's really yeah. cool. Yeah. So it's that buck really of mine three back. years ago removed the boulder. Remember it kicked that boulder mm-hmm. loose and that boulder went way down that canyon. A huge boulder. Oh my gosh. And we didn't know if it was the deer following the boulder or whatever. We'll get here this boom, boom, boom going forever when he fell down it there. Yeah, so we already t- so we take care of Sophie's deer. We already told you that Jim couldn't hold his powder, and <laughs> while we we're doing that, so have to go watch this deer. Yeah, I gotta go keep an eye on him. <laughs> I, think, I, think on that's what, I think that's gonna be our new tagline <laughs> when someone's getting ready to shoot something. <laughs> gotta go keep you, tabs you, on that buck. Yeah. <laughs> uh, we'll have a guest hunter with and if Randy says hey I'm gonna go keep a tab on this buck here you guys will know that's code word for I'm probably gonna shoot this oh yeah, yeah get ready <laughs> but then it, I don't know what happened after that because when we are at Jim's buck I wasn't feeling that great I, my liver was flaring up and so I was more than happy to volunteer to help get the two bucks off the mountain it was Sophie and Jim and me and Nick, we took the bucks back to camp, yep. grazed our way there through a patch of salmon berries that the, the planet has not seen a patch mm-hmm. of salmon berries Red like ping exist. pong balls. Yes. Listen, I, I like to say we were just trying to better understand bear ecology. There you, you go. You know, get in their headspace. Oh, man. We are just browsing our way down that hill. Don't uh, follow the bear down the hill. That's it. Yeah, because <laughs> yeah, I was in the lead, and I, I was kind of like mm. this young kid running and grabbing mm. this big red one and that big red one. And, well, pretty uh, quickly, though, we kind of fanned out right. into optimal berry harvesting for me. Yeah. (laughs) That'll be, for me, the the most remarkable, one of the most (laughs) remarkable memories of this trip. But the the part that still is in my head is looking at Tyler and Marcus, and they knew that that big 4x4 we'd seen somehow Mm. had escaped us. We did our job first. No, you guys had done great work. Very professional. 100%. Then I just, it was like... I was excited uh, for you. Right. Yeah. You know, act three, whole new setting, whole new attitude, whole new everything. Tyler and Marcus are going to kill that buck. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of how you guys said it. And before anyone really could do an inventory of, do you have enough this? Do you have blah, blah, blah? You guys were like this little pair of glimmering dots. 
scaling your way back up this really steep face. And yes, they climbed back up the crazy canyon that we came down and they right. did it really fast. Yeah. Yeah. We had somewhere to be. Yeah. And <laughs> keep in mind it by now it's five thirty PM. Right. So that fog's trying to roll over yeah, the edge and I a mean, little bit. Knowing Southeast Alaska with my limited time of being here, you ha- hardly have any time of good weather. So you True. take advantage of it when it's there. And in my mind, and I told Marcus in a whisper before we were even remotely done with Jim's buck, I'm like, you know we're going right after this, right? Like, <laughs> we are gone. Like, yeah. we are- <laughs> Did he tell you that? I didn't hear it. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> huh. Well, better judgment for me was... You know what? For the safety of this operation, we already had one near miss today. Let's all just mosey back to camp and just try it tomorrow. But I think your judgment was good, Tyler, oh, because Lord, yeah, the weather. You had, it was good, but it was, you know, there's a lot of words I could probably use not to get ahead of where the story went, but. We'll take it there. Well, I will, I guess. <laughs> yeah. We, we Considering got, when we got there and how many bucks were in this basin and three years earlier where this all really started, and correct me if I'm wrong, we all, <clears throat> after Jim had killed his buck, Jim says, Randy, Tyler, I got to take you guys to the ridge and look over the back of this. And so we did and got up there. Yep. And I mean, it's just this oasis. It's just unbelievable. And there's deer all over and there's a nice buck and look at that buck and and we saw a deer, I wouldn't even say he was a mile away. I'm going to say he's three-quarter of a mile tops. Yep, tops. And I got great phone scope footage of him. And this buck, you know, and not that the record books are why I hunt or anything, but it's just a the Boone and Crockett scoring system is a way that we can all, as hunters, talk about an animal. And this thing, if he wasn't in the top five in the world, he wasn't an inch I mean, this thing it's for huge. archery, for archery equipment. I mean, it was a monster because Randy had killed the next morning a Boone and Crockett all-time net buck, and this buck was bigger than that. So, you know, I knew what was there. And so anyway, circling back, when we first got to this basin, we had seen a deer that we knew was world-class. Yeah. And I think my words were, well, we have a candidate Yes. Or a target or a mark or whatever word you want to pick. Like we knew that this was a deer that was worthy of pursuit. And it wasn't one of the two that we had already killed. <clears throat> Not that those weren't great deer. It's just you guys were smart. You took the bird in hand. You killed great deer. Used the weather to your advantage. But in my mind, I'm like, I didn't dwell on this for three years and bring my bow back up here to, you know, and that's really where my mind was at. And that's why Marcus and I were like, we're going. So bringing you to that point, when we got to the ridge, we just, we knew where we needed to be to kind of watch that backside. Cause we watched that buck leave and roll out that top. and, And, you know, you can draw your conclusions to the terrain of what these deer like to do. I mean, they contour, you know, they like to stuff themselves in a place where they can feel safe and stash away for the day. And then you would think they're going to be up and feeding in the evening. I could pick them up, find them, plant a stock, make it happen. You know, that's that simple, right? Like, that's just what you do. <laughs> well, that was our plan, and and that's what Marcus and I did. And, and to be totally honest with you, 
and I think I said this in my interview and on camera and multiple times I reiterated it. That day was so surreal with our time lapses, our footage, the fog rolling over the ridges, like as the coloring. We, yeah. yeah, Marcus, as I mean. As soon as we got on top, it was the most spectacular scenery I'd ever filmed. Like Not just, just not, not just the bucks we were, I'm talking just the eye candy footage scenery. I cannot wait to share the film with the masses and let them just take that part of it in. Because really as hunters, a lot of what we do is not exactly the right. kill. Yeah. It's the adventure of it all. And it's like, it's all these things that are like so... Um, you, you close your eyes at night and you can't get it out of your mind. It's like, it's like this beautiful, colorful, artistic painting. So green you know? and there's rivers of fog that yeah. are just flowing. It was like, this looked like a river flowing through the mountains, but it was fo sea fog. For those of you that aren't. And it was just, yeah. yeah, yeah aren't photographers or camera people or whatever. Um, time lapses, you've probably heard of that, where you stagger your photographs and stitch them together to create these moving scenes. This was real-time time lapses. Like, we hit record on cameras and fog's pouring over and done. It's like, yeah. it's like the largest chunk of dry ice you've ever seen in your life yeah. just pouring over the top of these ridges. But anyways, so we were taking all this in. And yeah, just, virtually everything to the west of us was everything. solid fog. Everything. And, and below us. And below us, and it was just coming over the ridges yes. in, a, in yes. a wave. So we had that to kind of just take in and breathe in, but don't... You know, don't be wrong. Don't get me wrong. I mean, I'm, I'm looking for this deer. Like, I know he is there. It's the one. It's the target. It's what we want. Marcus, we're on the same page. You know, we're we're splitting up. We got our backs to each other. And you know, the smartest thing to do, especially early in the hunt, for anybody who's an archer and understands like the pursuit of a target like this you don't get too carried away with running around and start pushing stuff and bumping stuff. And you want to see him first. You want to dictate his next move. And then you want to put yourself in a position to make it happen. And that's what we were trying to do. But, you know, I'm looking at my watch and it's getting later and later. And we were looking at tons of bucks. I mean, tons of bucks. You know, and I have no regrets, but there was lots of deer that we could have stalked and probably got really high percentage shots on. Nice nice bucks but it's like nope 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 we are gonna find the target the candidate and as it got later and later i'm i'm thinking i think this deer is rolled into this back basin and we're gonna just walk the route that i think he walked and and you know marcus was right with me and we've we talked this out in every step and we hit the first terrace and it's like a you know, y'all hear a false summit. Well, this is like false terrace. You like get there and you look <laughs> and there's like a bench and then another terrace. And so I'm like, okay, we're, we're going to go to that one right down there. You know, so we go down and we hit the next one and we peek over that and well, there's a, there's another terrace, you know, and <laughs> I'm like, you know, that we got to go down and get up. And by now we are like well off the back of this mountain. Yeah. Right, quite at the, a ways. right at the edge of the solid timber. Yeah. yeah. And so literally God honest truth, it's like, I promise, Marcus, this is the last terrace. And then, <laughs> and then, and then we're going to hunt our way back. And, and, you know, we got a lot of days You're just going to keep a tab on that deer. Yeah. <laughs> and we walked down and we rolled over that terrace and there was a doe. There was a doe there and the sun was at our back. And I'm thinking to myself, it's a doe, sun at my back. 
They don't see humans much. She probably can't see us well. Let's just keep pushing along and just kind of roll the dice. So I don't know. We walk 20 yards on that bench, and I look back over my left shoulder, and who do you think standing there looking at us? That buck was in a stand of trees, that Crumsholt yep. timber, which is like winds wind sculpted. twisted yep. sculpted timber he had stood up out of that and staring at us and i instantly as when i put the binos on him in a millisecond i go that is him he there he is like that's the target buck now the problem is is he's made us and we are like 130 140 yards away which mm. you know i got a bow and i'm thinking well he's looking into the sun Let's not just fiddle fart around here. Let's like get out of his mind's eye and try to make a loop on him. Cause sometimes they'll like, their mind's computing the movement. They don't know. And by then I'm hoping to make my loop and make it happen. You know, I'm trying to like do everything that I can to put it together, even though he's essentially got the upper hand. And that's what we did. And we made the loop and come in right above where he was. And I seen his head and he's at 60 yards and he just goes out of sight. And I'm like, oh my gosh, if I was like five seconds faster or something, you know. So we made one more loop on him, tried to get ahead of him because by now he wasn't running or anything. He was just moving away from whatever the anomaly was. And uh, we come over the next ridge and there he is. And he's 90 yards broadside, (sighs) standing there looking at us. And there's no, there's no way to stalk. There's no way to close on him. There's nothing to do but to sit there and just admire him. And, we, you know, we got him on film, and it was kind of one of them things where I, and I'm, I've been in Marcus's shoes. You know, he doesn't want to screw anything up. You know, he's being very tentative on getting too high. Thank you for that. Because <laughs> we didn't know, like, what was about to happen. But he goes out to 100 and... Gives us every pose, every which way but west. And I'm thinking, if I had a gun right now, what would I do? Probably shoot the thing, you know. But anyway, the long and short of it was, it's like we put it together. We got on the deer. He's showcasing himself for us. He is an absolute giant buck. He's every reason why I thought about this for all those years, why I wanted to bring the bow, why, you know, and it's not about killing the world record or top 10 in the world. It's more about just the challenge of being a hunter and what that means to like pick a target out and go pursue it. And, and when he showed himself and we got the footage and the deer ended up walking away and Marcus and I were giddy. We were like two kids. Like, man, that was just so awesome. And like, <laughs> high-fiving. And, Can you believe that buck? Unbelievable. We're going to get on him again. And because yeah. he was calm and I know where he's going. And in my mind, I really did. I thought he, I knew where he was going. But just as Mother Nature, especially here in Southeast Alaska, has it, it just wasn't in the cards. I mean, the weather turned. And I think if it wasn't Hurricane Katrina, it was Hurricane something it was brutal (laughs) and it would not let up and i mean we pushed it we went the next day because the weather was not bad right away in the morning but it just it turned so bad that there was zero visual we couldn't see a thing you could cut the air with a knife i mean the, the the water it was one of the wettest probably top five wettest i've ever been to the core 
camera equipment was shutting down right and left. Yeah. Randy, everything works still. (laughs) (laughs) But I mean, like, failure to the max of everything. Um, I don't even want to start talking about other equipment failures, but at the end of the day, that's just the way hunting is. I'll look back on it. I have zero regrets um, because we did find the deer. That's all what hunting's about. You know, you don't always get the arrow on the way. Yes, he's at 90. Yes, I know I have a slider. Yes, I could shoot. You don't do that. Not on a deer of that caliber. Not You really don't do that, period, if you, you know, have a sense of respect, you know. And in my mind, I'm looking at the deer and I'm going, there's just no way. Like, I would much rather kill him where I am absolutely 100% sure that arrow is going to deliver the punch. And and I knew, I felt I had the time. It's just the weather when it turns here, especially in the Alpine, you, you, you don't have a chance. You just well, don't. The, Jim, you know better than I do, but uh, this can be really hard tracking country too if you wound an yeah. animal. Mm-hmm. You know, this is not easy country to find a downed animal And immediately in. below you as it goes back to Kirst. Mm-hmm. And you can't necessarily watch where they're going, you know, so trying to find yeah. that critter. Yeah, there was no second thoughts. I mean, yeah. matter of fact, when we walked back to camp the whole night, and you know, it took a while to walk back, we reminisced the whole way. We were excited, you know. Oh, really? It wasn't like, we were not bummed. We weren't like, man, that sucks a bad. I mean, I might have said like, <laughs> boy, look at that BS. Like, I can't believe this. Like, unbelievable. But it was like, how cool is that? Yeah. Like, we actually found that deer. Yeah. We put him that close to where we could really observe what he really was. And that's a testament to untouched habitat and and being able to live out their years and actually get big and, and you know, like across the across the board... You know, if you look in the Boone and Crockett record books and you want to start looking at what it takes, this deer had it all. Mm-hmm. He had everything, and he was right there, right there. <laughs> you know, well, I mean, and you all know more than I do, but I mean, isn't that that's why the Boone and Crockett record book was started, right? To reflect what is possible. What are these animals capable in of in optimum habitat? In optimum habitat, and this place where we are, or where we were, wish we were still there. That that's exactly what that's for yeah. right that deer is the manifestation of that Absolutely. habitat quality um, um, and if people want to go to the Boone and Crockett record book and look for the buck that I shot in 2015 you're not going to find it it's sitting <laughs> on my table with the official score sheet there but if they find our drone kind of giving <laughs> off a beacon noise they'll know where we were at but, the other thing I was going to say is, you know, part of, you know, you guys came back in this year from 2015 in part because of, you know, just knowing what what's up there or what's maybe up there. Yeah. You know, these huge bucks in this beautiful place. And Jim's been drawn back to that place again and again and again by the kind of mystique and the mystery and the potential of who's up there, what's up there waiting for you. And so, I don't know, in some ways, knowing that that incredible buck, you know, you've shown us some of the footage and we saw him through the scope, that he's up there right now Mm -hmm. is kind of amazing to think about. You know, this world-class animal. It certainly stings a little bit that, you know, we only had like four and a half hours of, of time to... 
But we did make it happen. We did get on him and we did get to get some footage of him. We did get to live that moment and be that close and share that and high five and talk the whole way back to camp about it. And and you know what? When things turned and went south and yeah, I'm I'm not gonna lie, I was I was bummed. I mean, I was really bummed when it would not let up and it was just it was persisting and torrential and then we have to go. Like extraction yeah. time. We're like coming off the mountain. We never had another chance. Yeah. And I'm not, there's no excuses here. Like that's just hunting. Yeah. I mean, that's just what happens if, you know, you go hang it out there and you put all that effort and time in. Sometimes, I mean, I've been on sheep hunts and backpack grizzly bear hunt one time where we were in temp three and a half days straight and we yep. couldn't see a hundred yards, mm-hmm. you know, and that's just part of hunting. And, but you know what? The plane was supposed to get us. And it couldn't come in and, and it was 24 hours a day daylight and we went hunting and we arrowed a grizzly bear on day 16 at 12.30 wow. p.m. at night. So it's just the way hunting works, you know, yeah. it's like, and you can never quit. And we never did quit. We just had to go. It was just our time. Like, you know, both Randy and Marcus and myself were all heading north straight from here to go sheep hunting, starting on August 10th, the opener for um, Alaska here and. And so we were on a timeline, you know, like if we didn't have that, I don't care what you guys say. We were staying. We were staying. The part that the audience might be missing is that the night that Marcus and Tyler got on that buck, they went out the next day and by nine in the morning, yeah, about it blew in and it was miserable absolutely as bad of weather rain and wind and everything as you could ask for you guys toughed it out all day in that the next day it was even worse and the day we decided to come off it was more of the same in the morning it was yeah. even worse yeah. yet yeah yeah, yeah. Because we were going to head out at 4 a.m., alarm set, and it, the weather was supposed to break, and it never did, and it persisted until we made it all the way back to the ocean. Yeah. <laughs> and, then the, and then the sky parted, and it's uh, like, why? Yeah. Why? But even, down at, right now. even down at the ocean, how hard was the wind blowing? It was right? howling. It was howling. I mean, can you imagine trying to loose an arrow no. in that kind of wind? Remember no. the water spouts? Yeah. It was picking the ocean up. You know, I just believe everything happens for a reason. And I I can't tell you why. And I I can't be mad at it. I can't. It just just happened the way it happened. And you know what? I'll share that story. And it still is cool. And it's going to be fun to to relish in it. And we will never forget it. I know Marcus and I won't, you know. You're one of the few people that have ever seen an animal of that quality. In all honesty. Yeah. 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 So, Marcus, you heard Tyler and I talk about this place for the last few years. Did did it meet the expectation of what you thought it would be? It, it exceeded it. Yeah. Really? It it was incredible. So, was there this like? Can it really be as good as they say? Was it? Was there that this thought the, ever in your mind? Well, I mean, the bucks are cool, but to me, <laughs> this the whole adventure of it and the scene, that landscape, and the sea fog and the colors and and the, the 19, 19 it, cameras all, that we have all of it it was just yeah it was incredible so it's, that's it's something else up there yeah and just the the adventure of flogging through you know you have to earn it you have to go through all the devil's club and up 
the roots and over the deadfall. You, you still picking those out of your hands? Yeah, oh, I, yeah. I've been sitting here <laughs> all through the podcast just picking devil's clothes out of my knuckles. I <laughs> feel character. No, it was, I mean, I don't, it was amazing. Yeah, I, I love those kind of adventures. There's always going to be some hardships along the way, but that just makes the reward so much better. Yeah, well said. Well, with that, um, our goal is to have this. Have we decided if we're going to still call it reindeer or not? That that we we had a working title for this film called Reindeer, like R A I N, like how <laughs> what Tyler and Marcus experienced up on the mountain. Rain. It's certainly mm-hmm. fitting, but like we were blessed and rolled many many camera when the foot or when the weather was beautiful. Yeah. So all right, but I. It is a fitting title for these deer in that... For the species. Yeah, for yeah. the species. They live in a rainforest. Yeah. A and for the last rainforest. three days of our trip. Yeah. I'm like, I think we earned that title to some extent. <laughs> <Brutal>. <laughs> so the, I, the reason I ask that is to let the audience know that our goal is to have sometime in December this film about ready to go. And it's going to talk about Sophie and Jim and their research and the work they do about their hunting together, their researching together, the landscape and these deer. But one of the things we want to do is for these two scientists who love these deer is raise the awareness of these deer and and just mm-hmm. whether you hunt or don't hunt. We want people to know that there are places in the world that are still so remarkable and so just undisturbed. And there, these are places and these species. We want we want advocates for that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, and almost all of these deer habitat, you know, this is this is the American rainforest, the American temperate rainforest. Almost all of this land is public land. Mm-hmm. It's the Tongass National Forest. Yep. Um, so these deer and their habitat, they're ours, you know, and I really want people to know more mm-hmm. about them. This is a unique place in America. There is nowhere else like this. Yeah. This is a new, unique place in the world. Right. Yeah. But it's a unique place and it's ours. And so kind of having people better understand just what they have, you know, this this mysterious deer and their rainforest home. And this is a... Yeah, this is a hunting adventure, but it's it's more than that, you know, and it's evolved over the last few years to be more of a, this is a Sitka blacktail story. This yeah. is not just a hunting adventure of hunting these Sitka blacktail deer. This is a Sitka blacktail story. And I'm going to say it again, I'm beating, I'm beating a dead dog here, but I've been really lucky in my life to, to do some amazing adventures and chase all kinds of animals. I mean, I don't even the list is a mile long, but the one animal I've hardly hunted is the Sitka black-tailed deer. And really, until I did it, they were just this little tiny mule deer thing that doesn't, you know, like (laughs) I didn't really have the appreciation guilty because I didn't know about them, you know? And, you know, meeting Sophie and Jim and and like being educated, you know, with their passion and, and, and the insights that they've given me and then gleaning you know, what I've gotten to witness and where they live. And they are a fascinating animal. 
and they taste really good too. I'm incredibly biased, but I think <laughs> yeah. they are North America's most beautiful deer. I mean, their markings, yeah. their habitat, they yep. are just a spectacular animal. Yep. Um, and they're also our least studied deer by a mile, by an yeah. absolute long shot. So they're mysterious and they're just yes. really special animals. And so like Randy said, our goal with this film is to really raise the bar of awareness for this species of deer. I mean, you look at your magazines and there's so many whitetail articles and so many mule deer shows and very, very limited on the Sitka blacktail. And so we're going to change that, you know, and we're going to really help put them on a map. And, and who better than to have Sophie and Jim be kind of the liaisons, so to speak, or the stewards of the species. So yeah. we just want to help tell that story and and show it to the to the masses and hunters and non-hunters alike. I mean, this film's going right. to be for both. It's not going to be a hunter's film. This is going to be a film that people who've never hunted before, you should go see it. I mean, this is going to be a very educational, interesting, um, thought-provoking film that's made with a lot of thought and a lot of passion and with some great characters and great people. Yeah. So to raise that advocacy and awareness, uh, will there someday be a website that the two of you have? <laughs> uh, there truckling. will. There will. Is, is there a place that we can tell the audience? Because this podcast is going to release a week from Friday. A week from Friday? A week Friday? from Friday. Let me think. Yeah, two weeks from Friday. Which one you want to go with, Jim? What's your favorite? Well, I'm very biased towards siskablacktail.org. What we've done is we've bought up a bunch of domain names, uh -huh. and we have a website. We just have to pick which domain name we want to tell people. We're going to point them to. all at this website. Okay. Right now, it has some basic information about Sitka Blacktails and what we hope to accomplish for them in terms mm -hmm. of research and outreach in the future. Mm -hmm. But what we'd like to do is build it into a platform for people to learn about the deer, contribute to research and conservation if they feel that need and that urge, um, learn about hunting these deer as well as what research has been done on them, um, and really just share you know, just share these deer with the world yeah. through this platform. You know, what's a Sitka black tail? Yeah. <laughs> you know, what, what are their life cycles? What do they do? You know, mm -hmm. and, and what, are, what do they mean on the landscape and to the people that live here? SitkaBlacktail.org. Not with an S at the end. Nope. Sit, no. Just singular. SitkaBlacktail.org. All one word. All right. That's right. Okay. Well, that, we, we, want, we always want to get the audience excited. And we want to give them something to do with their excitement. So you need to work on your sales pitch, Sophie. Here's how an accountant would have said that. <laughs> we want people to get excited and write a check so that we can continue to give you the greatest science we can related to there you go. Sitka Blacktail and their habitat. And science isn't free. How's that? That... That a better sales pitch? There you go. I think yeah. you nailed it. And with that yeah. comes 
a great hunting opportunity through the longevity right. and future of the so, Sika black-tailed deer. So we were talking <laughs> on the way down as, as we were skiing down this slope of debris and mud and deadfall and praying that nobody got hurt, how we could raise money for this species. And I think we concluded that we could auction off the path, <laughs> the GPS path, the GPS the track, to get to this spot. I wonder what it would go for. Let's put it out there a couple years bidding, so I can get back there. <laughs> yeah. And I'm not done going up there either. Okay. All right, it so, took me too many years to find that. All right. Route. So once Jim retires from this spot, uh, ooh, this probably. Yeah, this is not a spot she can wheel me out in a wheelchair no, later. It's no, it's not so, wheelchair okay, friendly. Yeah, yeah, this is going to yeah. have to be. So we'll have to to parachute this is a you in. Flying scale time <laughs> time. So I think here's what we do: we have to put a reserve minimum that for a hundred thousand dollars, <laughs> maybe you would share these. Hmm. Or, Okay, we could just give them the coordinates without the route to get there. Yeah, and for Jim. an extra hundred thousand, we will give you the breadcrumbs. We'll give you the route so you don't get cliffed out multiple times like Jim did in trying to finally discover this. Jim, route. that's a lot of GPS collars. That's a lot of GPS collars. Uh, mm. Jim, Jim's getting a little uncomfortable. Yeah. Yeah. Put him outside. We'll have to work on him. We didn't uh, vet this out yet, but. If they underbid, uh, they just get the GPS coordinates to the drone. (laughs) There you go. There you go. Which could be more treacherous than actually going. Well, you remember, it crashed very close to one of the places that I failed to gain Uh, access to. uh, Yeah, that's, there you go. The Uh, consolation prize, if you only bid so much, all you get is the drone coordinates. And if you return the card in the drone before (laughs) December, (laughs) there is a reward. Absolutely. Who's paying that reward? Well, we could probably find it in the budget if you could get it in time. (laughs) Okay. Oh, my Hmm. God. Well, it's been a, a remarkable trip for me. I, I came here, and even though I had a tag and carried a rifle, I was telling Marcus and Tyler today that so much of this trip for me was just soaking more of it in. I yeah. really, don't get me wrong, I, I, if the weather had been good, I would have been very interested in pursuing these deer, but... For me, it was just like the things you pointed out this time, Jim, we didn't see last time, like humongous rubs on these big trees that like, wow, these deer are here in November when the rut's going on. I'm like, oh, so all of this part about the landscape and where they're at and, and just trying to understand a way to tell the story that is so unique to th- this this landscape is so unique that's what m- where my mind was most of this hunt and mm-hmm. if i didn't i didn't really hunt that much mm-hmm. if you don't even call it that now you, i felt like it was a spectacular use of my time yeah it's great well i feel really lucky to have been a part of this so i i really appreciate being included in this and getting to share a little bit more about these deer and you know, the things that science can tell us about them with, 
you and your audience. So thank you so much for having me. Yeah. Uh-huh. Thanks for all the work the two of you do. Jim is is the are, are you an unpaid volunteer? Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. Oh, okay. <laughs> he gets paid in other ways. Yeah. So, yeah he, he gets, my wife cooks. She's awesome. Yeah. Well. No, yeah. you know what? To, to He's mad at me cuz I don't have enough things for him to do in the woods, he says. Oh, so, really? Yeah. She needs another project so that I can do catch and release hunting and <laughs> yeah. something to do all winter. But you know the for me it was the minute Sophie and I started working together on her research, let alone for hunting, uh, we were looking at pictures of this stuff. And she's been, I mean, this because this is Nirvana. And this is, I because she wanted to know about habitat. And I said, this is it. And for me, it was a great f- f- fulfillment to have her go see that place. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You can't describe it. No, I can't describe it in a way that you you have to experience it. And even footage, although it's going to be epic and amazing, and it, and it will, being there is, it's indescribable, it's unbelievable. I think, yeah. Randy, you put it really well in one of the conversations you and I are having while we were up there. It's that moment you step out of the timber, mm-hmm. when you step your foot into that meadow. Yeah, you get it right at that very second. Yeah. You struggle and you struggle and you struggle and you climb and you push through all that junk and you sweat and you crawl out there and you step out of that forest. And it's like, oh my gosh. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it, that's exactly how it is. It's, it's really, you have to be there breathing it, seeing yeah. it, observing it to, to understand it. But what it made me think about one night as I was laying in the tent hoping it didn't blow away was I wonder if there are other places for other species that mm. are this pristine and this quality of habitat and I just haven't found it yet. Yeah, it's a great question. I Maybe I've been too much of a wuss and turned around just before I was going to get to the elk nirvana or the antelope nirvana or the whatever would be the equivalent to this habitat yeah. quality. Well, uh, I think in our... You know, our modern world, it's going to be just that, places that are hard to access. Mm-hmm. You know, high-quality habitat that's hard to access. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, that's... It's where that statement of what you put in is what you get out. Yep. Yeah. Mm. That's a nice thing to think about. Where's elk nirvana? It's in my mind right yeah. now. I, I'm hoping that later this week I find dull sheep nirvana. <laughs> for, for those of you listening, I know you're all saying, Newberg, you you do self-guided hunting. Yep, I do. But the only way a person like me can kill a dull sheep, which is one of my life's dreams, is to use an outfitter. So the next podcast is going to be Marcus and I summarizing a dull sheep hunt. So if the Puritans want to hold that against me about hiring an outfitter to fulfill a dream i get that uh but that's i hope i find doll sheep nirvana and i hope i talk about it on a podcast and you will see it on on video with the disclaimer that this is a guided hunt so change the channel mm-hmm. if that offends you i think you could how about sheep shangri-la Ooh. there you go yeah hmm that would work. That would work. I hope I find it. But 
Anyhow, anyone got any parting comments, marital advice? We have, have, we've given no marital advice on this podcast. <laughs> this is a first. <laughs> this is a first. We could have asked Karen to come in. She should have. How, how long have you guys been married, Jim? 20 years. 20? Year. Sophie, how long have you been married? Six years. Six. Marcus? Two. Two. Tyler, how long have you been married? Uh, ten and a half. Really? Yeah. Huh. Man, I am like Methuselah. <laughs> I'm getting pushing 30 here. So that's why I give so much marital advice. I figure, you know, if you've been married 30 years. What's your best advice, Randy, oh, for us, it's us every, short every, timers? Every, everyone already knows that. It's And mine is always through the lens of the husband. Yeah. And I think you might have heard me say it the other day around here or somewhere of, if if you want your marriage to be a smooth, easy path, like the interstate as it's just recently been cleared of snow, <laughs> it's this. Be more interested in peace than justice. That's Being a good right one. is the most expensive <laughs> and painful part mm. of any relationship. If you get to year 10, get rid of all of your tools and quit being a handyman. Because the number one cause of divorces that have lasted more than 10 years is handyman work. <laughs> so don't be a handy guy. Where did you get that statistic? What is it? 86% of them are made up on the spot? <laughs> I made it up. But it sounds good. It, it, it fits my narrative. So, And it's further reason why I convinced my wife that I don't, I'm not a handy guy. I fish and I hunt. You know, yeah. pay the man. Yeah. So I think if any husband is listening to this, your motto should be pay the man. Yeah. And just be done with it. That's why they invented yellow pages and Angie's list yeah. and all that stuff. Oh, you need to live in Thorn Bay. There's no man to pay. <laughs> I'd find somebody. There, everyone has a price, Jim. So. The South Side Boys, there's got to be one of them. Yeah. The South Side Boys. <laughs> so, Marcus, in your two years of being married, what's, your, what's the best advice you got? I, I don't know. I don't know. Oh, uh, we're putting just, him on the spot here. I don't want to. Uh, well, with my wife, we just go on all of our adventures together. So uh, I don't. You don't have. I any don't really no use kids? excuses to. Well, right. I mean, I got, obviously for work, I'm gone a lot. Yeah. So but no uh, kids, no dogs, no, anything that like that. So. That's almost like not even being married, Marcus. <laughs> I mean, you guys probably even have separate bank accounts or something. Oh, yeah. yeah well, <laughs> they got nothing to fight about. I did for 10 years. I just finally made the jump. Yeah. Oh, you got a joint bank account? Yeah, well, we have all kinds. We've got two. We've got our own checking account and, and a joint. Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I did transfer all of Karen's my money all to my money. Kara's account because <laughs> she has to buy a house while we're on this doll sheep hunt. So yeah, uh -huh. that's as close as I have to. She just has all of my money all right your now. Money. <laughs> you're you're, you're <laughs> going to get it back. You have a wife when you get home. <laughs> he, he thinks he's going to get it back. <laughs> <laughs> oh my, this could go downhill in a hurry. Yeah, what do you say? I'll we be laughing. And we should end Ten this. Days with, here. Yeah, we we were talking about a really good subject that was truthful and factual about the science of black-tailed deer, and then Randy had to break out the BS about marriage. Yeah, every bit of my marriage advice is made up on the spot. So, 
or made up from personal experience I care not to get into any deeper on. <laughs> but, well, it folks, sounds good. Yeah, it, it sounds good at the time. So anyhow, I think we're going to cut it off. The sun is actually set here in Alaska. We have a star. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah. So It's uh, August. Winter is coming. Really? Yeah. Did you notice that the there's only about that much left on the top of the fireweed? Yeah. So the, when, as soon as the fireweed blooms all the way up the stock and the, the last <laughs> flowers fall off, then you're uh, done with summer. It's summer's oh, really? clock. Yep. Oh, wow. Yeah. I didn't yeah. know that. Yeah. Well, that's so. the, what we use as a measurement. Okay. Okay, let's get out of here. All right, <laughs> folks. Thanks for listening. Tyler, shut it down for us. <laughs>